This week on the show, I take over, and we've got some of the best moments from 2016 in the place to be, SD. Now, the holiday edition. Hi, folks. I'm your host, Chris, and I'm sitting in for Chris Moore and Alan Jude to give them the week off so they can have time with the families. And I'm going to go through some of the best of BSD Now in 2016. I don't know if I could really say it's fair to call it the best, but it's some of the moments we wanted to reshare with you, like this moment when Leo Laporte landed on BSD. So anyway, uh, the big news was that Leo Laporte has tried a free BSD and posted about it up on his blog mm-hmm. there, which uh, if you don't know, he's formerly of Tech TV and now of uh, Twit TV, mm-hmm. is now switching to free BSD. So tell us a little about this, Alan. Yeah. What, what prompted this? Well, so apparently um, his Windows computer decided to force upgrade itself to Windows 10. And he decided enough oh. of that. Oops. <laughs> so he said, yeah, the latest debacle over the forced upgrade to Windows 10 and Apple's increasingly locked in ecosystem has got me thinking, do I really need to mm-hmm. use a proprietary operating system to get work done? And while I'm at it, sure. do I need to use commercial cloud services to store my data? No. Uh, exactly. I, <laughs> you know, he's been a sometimes Linux user since the mid 90s. And, uh, you know, he still actually has a, his laptop is Linux. But when he was building his workstation, he's like, well, I want serious storage. Uh, and, you know, what better operating system to deal with serious storage than FreeBSD? Was EFS, yes, yes. Yeah, he says, you know, uh, but as time went by, even Ubuntu seemed to be too commercial for him, he says. And uh, so he says, now uh, for the grand experiment. Is it possible, I wonder, to do everything I need to do on uh, an even more venerable, more robust uh, system, a true Unix OS, FreeBSD? Uh, and he. Uh, smartly for some of the switching, he actually made a list of the things he needs to be able to do. Uh, mm-hmm. And so his requirements were that he wants something that's stable, uh, that you know works even after updates. It's like, well, FreeBSD is good at that. I've upgraded my FreeBSD 6.0 machine in place all the way to 10.3 uh, using FreeBSD update you know, one step at a time as I went through the years, and it's uh, been perfect the whole way. Sure. Uh, he says security, no viruses, no exploits, no snoops or spooks, you know, especially now with Windows having so much silent stuff happening and so on. Uh, you know, the one thing, just give me a moment to vent here on Windows 10, which is what I use for the Skype here for uh, production. It just really annoys me that I have to get advertisements on the right hand side. Like, try Office. Have you tried our other product? Like, come on. Does that need to be just built into the operating system? Okay, rant yes. over. Sorry. Uh, you know, he says you, uh, he wants a UI that looks good but doesn't get in the way, and he wants it to be pretty fast. Uh, but the important thing is what he wants to be able to do is web browsing. You know, that, that works pretty well. Uh, email with PGP signing and encryption. Uh, basically, everybody in FreeBSD does that. Uh, coding. Sure. He says he's a hobbyist programmer and requires support for Lisp, Scheme, and Racket, Rust, and Python. Uh, and maybe even uh, he mentions fourth. Fourth, <laughs> I know what the hell, hey, Leo. Come help me work on the boot menu. <laughs> uh, we have our new bootloader yes. <laughs> program. 
Uh, he wants to be able to do writing because obviously he runs uh, blogs and, and podcasts and so on. So he does a lot of writing. He wants a password vault. He says he currently uses LastPass. And, uh, you know, I use that on FreeBSD and it works very well. Uh, mm-hmm. Although he's looking at maybe some kind of free open source replacement for LastPass. So if you have ideas for that, let him know. Uh, and he wants to do some light photo editing. Uh, he says he loves Photoshop and Lightroom, but he's pretty sure he can get away with GIMP and Darktable for the amount of uh, editing he actually does. Sure. Uh, he even uh, pulls out that, uh, you know, really old uh, rant from uh, Matthew Fuller about uh, BSD versus Linux uh, as mm-hmm. for some of the other reasons and so on. Uh, he mentions, you know, specifically he talks about a little bit about why he chose FreeBSD over, say, OpenBSD, NetBSD, or even PCBSD. And it's really, you know, going for the larger community and uh, the handbook and so on. Although uh, PCBSD has a version of the handbook with even more stuff in it, right? Sure. But, uh, yeah, and we're glad to see him land on uh, FreeBSD. He says he does have a contingency plan. He's not throwing away his Windows computer or his Mac or his Linux machine, uh, but his main workstation is going to be this FreeBSD machine. Nice. So uh, he bought a nice uh, workstation here. It's uh, a Supermicro X11-based uh, motherboard with a Xeon E3-1275 V5. That's the latest uh, Skylake uh, E5. Or sorry, E3. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a server with one of these. It's really, really nice and super fast. Mm. You know, uh, the base clock is 3.6 gigahertz, and it's got four actual cores plus hyperthreading, uh, and all the latest Skylake everything. You know, DDR4 RAM, etc. It's got 32 gigs of ECC, uh, a 512 gig uh, NVMe M2 for uh, his OS drive, which will be ZFS, nice. and then four one terabyte uh, Samsung SSDs. Uh, that will be his storage pool. So hmm. that'll be really fast. Four one terabyte SSDs. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, you know, Samsung Evo 850s. You almost don't even need the NVMe at that point. <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, plus a DVD burner because he actually bought uh, his set of FreeBSD DVDs, which is nice. Uh, and then an NVIDIA GTX 960. Uh, that's actually the card I have. Uh, and that obviously works very well under FreeBSD as well. This is, although it's not really for gaming because, you know, he's got his Xbox and his PS4. Your PS4 runs FreeBSD too. Uh, That's true. So. <laughs> and it says... Uh, so this is his second FreeBSD box. Yeah. <laughs> and then, well, the third because he's got the Mac, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, uh, and he's got a 450 megabit uh, wireless and dual band PCIe adapter with uh, two or with three antennas. He says, uh, yes, sad to say, uh, unless I rewire my house, I will have to use Wi-Fi on this beast. Um, so I'll probably rewire my house. <laughs> right, well, yes, if it's going to be your storage server and you're going to have four uh, yeah. SSDs in a ZFS pool, you're going to need some fast wired networking. You're going to want... Yeah, serving that over Wi-Fi just makes no yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah, you're, you know, get some 10 gigabit going, you'll be, you'll be much happier. This is the boat anchor I attached to my Porsche. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, he says he also ordered a small NUC style box uh, that he's going to look at doing his little self-hosted cloud with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so I found that uh, pretty interesting. Uh, and I'll uh, continue to chronicle my journey into the land of free open source software here uh, once the beast arrives, which is what he's named his FreeBSD mm-hmm. box. Uh, but he says, uh, in the meantime, excuse me, I have some reading to go do. <laughs> Now, I want to talk about a trend that's developed throughout the show over the year. And as a viewer of BSE Now, it's been one of the topics I have followed with a lot of fascination and then got the real lowdown at Meet BSD, which felt like the true unveiling. But 
before we get to the true unveiling of TrueOS, let's talk about DigitalOcean, the first sponsor of the BSD Now program. Use the promo code FREEBSDNOW, all one word, after you sign up, you apply it to your account, and you get a $10 credit. Now, they have droplets that run all versions of Linux, but also FreeBSD. And they have block storage, which you can attach and play around with with ZFS. And they make it super simple to manage all of it with a very straightforward API and a fantastic interface. All SSDs, which means that your storage performance is always top-notch. 40 gigabit E connections to the hypervisors. They have team accounts if you want to work with other people, and they make it easy to transfer machine light later on. The private networking is great for backups or if you want to do a front-end proxy. And the highly available storage means that if you want to add just a gigabyte or all the way up to 16 terabytes of SSD-backed storage, you can do it. But what I think is really kind of awesome for those of us that want to poke around with an open-source project or experiment with something, $0.03 cents an hour is an unbelievable price to pay to get 2 gigs of RAM, a 2-core processor, 40 gigabyte SSD, and 3 terabytes of transfer. That's just remarkable. And if you use the promo code FREEBSDNOW, all one word, you get a $10 credit. And you can try it out. Two months for free if you do the $5 rig. DigitalOcean.com and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the BSD Now show. Now, I am an inspiring ham. That means I haven't tried it yet, but I love the idea of eventually getting into it. And that was what got my attention for episode 158. But what made me stick around was learning about TrueOS. If you've been watching the show for the past few months, you've probably heard me dropping little hints about the upcoming rename of PCBSD and TrueOS. And, you know, we're taking our time announcing that, but we've pretty much made that more official now. And we're asking folks to test out the software before a wider announcement this fall. So we consider this like a soft launch. So we have a link to the blog post where we talked about this, but I'll just kind of recap some of it here for you. So for those who've been wondering about the name change, it's actually been something we've discussed over the past few years. I think even going back five years ago, it had come up at one point and we've discussed it. But uh, with us beginning to move more aggressively with changes for 11.0 and eventually what became 12 current, uh, the time just kind of seemed right since we had just kind of changed everything. And not only that, we've changed uh, the soft but development release model. If we're going to do a rebrand, this was the time to do it. So uh, we have gone ahead and done that now. But uh, discussing more about this in detail, I'm going to be giving a talk at Meet BSD uh, 2016. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to be out there in person, you'll get to see it. Although I hope that gets recorded as well for those who can't attend. But uh, here's some of the highlights we're going to be going over. So first of all, um, one of the differences with TrueOS versus PCBSD is we're no longer tied to uh, specific FreeBSD point releases. So in the past, you know, PCBSD 10.3 would come out, say, the same day or within a day or two of FreeBSD 10.3, and that's what it was based off of. So TrueOS instead is taking a little bit different path and is going to follow the rolling release model based upon FreeBSD current. So if you grab it right now, don't be shocked when you see it says 12.0-current in your uname. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that's not a mistake. That That is correct. And uh, part of the reason for doing that was when we were doing the 11.0 release cycle about uh, three, four months ago, we just ran into things where it's like I bought a brand new carbon from Lenovo and the Wi-Fi wasn't supported. That was in current and wasn't going to make it into 11.0. So already it's like we haven't even released yet, and I'm already like, oh, I wish I had support for this soft, this hardware. And we wanted to get away from well, that. Well, in particular, wanted, when, when the support is already committed and yes, you just can't yes. have it. It's like, ah. You just can't have it yet, right? It's like, okay, well, you can wait six months or, you know, depending on what type of support it is, you can wait two, three years if it's going to be in a .o, mm-hmm. like if it's not going to get backported to stable. So I was just like, you know what? I'm sick of that. I want the free BSD or I guess the TrueOS experience to be different where it's like, I just bought this hardware. The support landed. Ooh, two weeks ago 
great, I can have it now. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have to wait to get my Wi-Fi going. So that was uh, the big uh, motivation behind wanting to move to a rolling release model. So uh, at the moment, that currently looks like uh, about every two weeks we're pushing out a new release, which includes a new FreeBSD world kernel and packages to go with it, which has been working out pretty well. We've been doing it internally for about three months now and have written a bunch of special tooling to uh, handle that. And of course, features such as boot environments finally make this a feasible option. You know, uh, in the early days of PCBSD, this is something I wouldn't have dreamed right. of, right? We didn't even have package at the time. Um, we didn't have ZFS. We didn't have boot environments. So something like that would have been very risky to do. Nowadays, no, not a big deal. If the update fails, you roll back your boot environment. You send a bug report. We even have a self-updating updater now. So during the uh, debugging of that, I can put a new update manager out, and you can just continue to update as you normally would once the bug has been resolved. So it's not even as difficult to uh, fix update problems as it used to be. So um, all things considered, I'm really enjoying the rolling release model, and it's been nice to have like all my systems in sync and constantly updated. Um, in addition to some of those changes, though, TrueOS does things different than vanilla FreeBSD as well. We've started pulling in a lot of things from different places. So specifically, though, we've pulled in Matt Macy's DRM work and the Linux Compat work because obviously we're a workstation and we want graphics to work. Turns out X and drivers are important to us. So we're pulling that stuff in, which hasn't even landed all in FreeBSD head yet. Um, other stuff we've pulled in is Bernard Spill, who we've interviewed mm-hmm. here before as well, has uh, imported LibreSSL directly in a base. So if you do an install TrueOS and do a package info, you won't see LibreSSL. But if you run OpenSSL-version, you'll see it's LibreSSL242, I believe, is what it's running right now. So the latest stuff, and it's just directly in base. And another thing we're working on for this next week's release is we're switching to building from an external tool chain. So Clang's not even in the base system anymore. We now build from the Clang from port which is LLVM 3.8 at the moment, and that fixes some things like OpenMP support being enabled for packages that build with it, etc. So, again, we're doing a little bit of things differently. It's still FreeBSD, though, and no, we're not forking or anything like that because this is all stuff we hope eventually will land in FreeBSD in some form or another. I don't anticipate them switching to LibreSSL in the base, but hopefully Bernard's options will be there, so at least the support's there for it, mm-hmm. and we just happen to build with those flags on versus vanilla FreeBSD not. So uh, that's kind of where we're at with it. Of course, uh, new to- uh, there's a whole bunch of tooling that's been placed. We're in the process of replacing the legacy control panel mm-hmm. with uh, the new SysADM stuff, which I've talked about in the yes. past, which is another QT GUI that lets you do remote driving around of your TrueOS desktop or server with either WebSockets or REST APIs as well. So again, just a lot of stuff has changed, and I'm going to be talking about more of these things as uh, the next couple months unfold here. And of course, when I kind of give the official presentation at MeetBSD, but for the moment, we are asking people to go ahead and feel free to test it, let us have feedback while we're working and fixing bugs and testing, uh, getting us towards a more stable release. Like, I think this last week we found an issue where sometimes uh, one package repo updated and the other didn't, and that screwed up the updater, so I fixed that last mm-hmm. night. Like, Little things like that still need to be sorted out, but it's it's getting pretty good, and again, we're running a whole office on it here at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have been now for about two, three months, so it seems to be working out, and of course, we welcome your feedback, and uh, take a look at the website. Um, we have a Gitter channel if you want to chat with us. That's a Slack-like thing if you're not an IRC fan and also uh, Reddit. We officially support that as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, get in touch with us on those various social media avenues. So uh, the chat room asks uh, for more explanation on changing the name. Oh, on changing the name. Okay, so PCBSD. 
it's a really long acronym, right? And we've also been using the name TrueOS for a while. So if you've installed PCBSD anytime in the last five years, you've seen um, on the selection screen, it'll say PCBSD Desktop or TrueOS Server, right? So we've already kind of been using both. But we wanted to unify on one. But unfortunately, PCBSD is a terrible name for a server. Well, especially technically your name is PC-BSD, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, and, and it's also a recognition of it's a different world today. I'm envisioning a day when we have ARM mm-hmm. versions of TrueOS, right? And PCBSD doesn't really say ARM to me or doesn't scream <laughs> yeah. ARM, right? There's definitely that. <laughs> There's definitely that. So, again, the TrueOS name allows us to do things in a more generic way where we could have a TrueOS embedded or a TrueOS ARM or server or workstation or various TrueOS targeted things that, again, PCBSD maybe doesn't really scream that. Plus, it's a mouthful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how many people? I've been to so many trade shows. They're like, "What does that even mean?" Maybe they've not even heard of the words BSD. That's an acronym in and of itself. And then you throw PC on that, and it's just this mess of letters. And I yeah. know for years, my folks couldn't remember what it was called. You know? yeah. So it was, and it was time for something. You know, True OS is easy to remember. And then you know, when you compare, there's like PC Linux OS. I'm like, well, that's a kind of a lame name, isn't it? And then you realize yeah. PCBSD basically means the same thing, right? It's exactly the same thing, right? So, and some I know some people were kind of. Uh, a little concerned that we drop BSD out of the name. And so, no, it has nothing to do with hating on BSD or anything. It's just a reflection of we wanted something that's a little Well, less. in particular, it's the type of people yeah. that need to be able yes. to remember the name don't know what BSD is. And so Correct. sticking three random letters in there doesn't help them. <laughs> it doesn't really help them in any case. But if they go, now, true operator, okay, I can remember that. Yes. That makes sense. And it was it was the least radical name change we could have made since, again, we already owned all the TrueOS stuff yes. and we're using it. Because it's not so. the name I recommended after we had our discussion with Alfred where he this complained about the name PCBSD. And then, like, a week later, you started this whole rename to TrueOS thing. Yep. Well, we kicked around a bunch of names internally. We had some good ones, but at the end, we were like, you know, we we kind of like Troas, and it so, just so, it already has been in use and mm-hmm. stuff. So, where, where did mine it. come on the on the ranking? There, yours was second. Okay. Yours was second. <laughs> but so the Troas thing also works because again, we're all IX people mm-hmm. uh, who work on this for the most part. Uh, but a lot of us are, and we have TrueNAS right. and FreeNAS. So it kind of fit in with that whole family of naming. So I was like, yeah. okay, I like that. Like, I, I, I'm cool with that. But again, it's all open source. It's still BSD licensed. So nothing has changed as far as that goes. We're all still on GitHub. And, and uh, hopefully it'll get better than ever is, yeah. is what we're looking at. Because it already seems to be. I'm already doing far more stuff on TrueOS yeah. than I have uh, been on I like the, uh, I put it on both of my laptops right before a conference which is kind of a risky thing to do. Although it was slightly easier now because I could install to my existing zpool, so I basically installed TrueOS 12 in a new boot environment on my old uh, PCBSD Correct. 10 that had been hacked and cobbled to actually be FreeBSD 11 um, and had other terrible things done to it. So well, just a fresh boot environment, can, and it was all clean. Yeah. And you can do a min mount and then go grab your changes. Yep. Like, for example, I had my OpenVPN config on an old boot environment, so I just mounted, grabbed it. Okay, I'm done. And then once you've moved stuff over, you can nuke that old boot environment when you're comfortable. So that's the upgrade path uh, for those wondering who are still on PCBSD and want to switch. You'll install into a boot environment, You know, pull cherry-pick the files out you want from your old boot environments, and then you're good to go. 
So it just works. And speaking of, I put that feature in a free NAS not too long ago, too, just nice. this last week. So free NAS will allow you to do that here soon, too, so you don't have to blow away your boot pool. But anyway, that's that's for another day. <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to mention all the other names we consider because it'll make you guys start arguing about, oh, you should have picked yeah. this or that. Yeah, we should it's not do true that. It's true OS. Deal with yes. it. We've already registered the name and set up the site. Done everything. Yes, yeah, so you already built I'm a new website and yet. got the logo and... <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, um, we'll talk more about that in the future. And of course, when I give the talk at MeetBSD, talking about some of the details and whatnot, um, you'll get to hear more about what the plan is going forward. And I think that's when we'll do like the hard launch and give, yep. do a press release and all that. And, and hopefully at that point, it's solid enough where I feel like telling people, okay, now it's time to migrate from PCBSD. Everybody already did. <laughs> See, there you go. I know a lot of us already have. But, you know, for mere mortals, Alan, I must admit you're slightly above yes. you know, <laughs> what people would consider a mere mortal computer user. But, uh, yeah, for, for everyone else who doesn't want all the, all the bugs or whatever, give us a couple months and then we'll go ahead and right. you I have, I haven't job. upgraded the machines of the other people at my office yet. Okay. But, okay. Uh, you know, eventually we'll have We've to do done You'll have to do that. We've done a lot of work, too, to make 4K a thing, too. Like, 4K work really well. Uh, all the machines in our office are dual monitor 1080p. Okay. Well, then you won't care yeah. so much. But in PCDM now, you can even choose the DPI. Mm -hmm. So if you have a 3K or 4K, like my Carbon is 3K, then I can set a DPI for that. And then that sets it for your desktop when you log in, which is kind of cool. So, so you can take right. your 3K screen and make it look like my 1080p screen? <laughs> Correct. Just well, slightly yeah, smoother just, edges. The smoother edges makes things bigger so you can read them. Mm -hmm. You don't have those teeny tiny little fonts. So we're just doing a lot of work to make those things just, just work. Mm -hmm. And I've been very pleased with the results. Every time we talk about ZFS or ZFS, as Mr. Jude puts it, don't you honestly think, what's the best way to set things up? Well, Josh gave us his best do's and don'ts of setting up ZFS. Okay, we're joined now by uh, Josh Petzl. First of all, you've been on the show before, but thank you so much for uh, coming mm -hmm. back. Sure thing. Nice to uh, nice to be on again. So I guess your title now at IX, titles tend to change there, and you know who knows what it is every week, but I guess at the moment it's Storage Architect, so we're glad to talk to the architect today, and uh, we got lots of stuff to talk about related to storage and ZFS. I, I try not to use my matrix voice. <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, it's too bad. If we didn't get you a few weeks ago, we could have had the uh, Santa hat and beard back, maybe. You know, you know, I dug it up out of storage. Uh, I was almost going to wear it today, and then I was like, nah. Uh, yeah, just a late. couple weeks too late. <laughs> oh, well. Yes. All right, so you got the next one, yeah. Alan? Uh, so um, we've heard that you've moved uh, away from the Bay Area, and you're now in a new location. How is it treating you? You know, it's not too bad. This is home. Mm -hmm. So uh, my wife grew up in, in very northern Wisconsin, up on Lake Superior. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in the Twin Cities area of Minnesota. So we're halfway in between those. We're in a pretty remote location, northern Wisconsin. But uh, th this is really our people. Mm -hmm. So so we fit in pretty good here. That's cool. Um, yeah. Well, Alan was pointing out to me, you're actually farther north than he is. I was, I had to look at a map and go, no way, I guess he is. <laughs> yeah, how's that? Yeah, it's the, one of my favorite things to do about living here is troll the Canadians about how I'm going south to BSD Can this year and stuff. <laughs> like, no, no, we're in Canada. You're in the U.S. It's like, yeah, no, nah. I'm, <laughs> I'm in one of those parts of the U.S. that's north of some of the parts of yeah, Canada. So I, I live in the good part of Canada, but that's further south. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So how's the internet connectivity up there? How's that work? Well, um, I have far better internet here at my house than I had living in Silicon Valley. 
Oh, um, so, so it turns out that the inter- internet infrastructure here is relatively new, and there's only one way to bring internet to people who live uh, widely scattered over large areas, and that's via fiber. Mm-hmm. So you'll be happy to know that I have a shiny fiber connection running right to the house. Oh, I hate you. More than, more than uh, both of you. Set that up as fast as you want. They're like, how much do you want to pay for? You want a giggy fiber connection? No problem. I um I live quite modestly with a 10 megabit connection. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's pretty slow by modern standards, but it's also like $7 a month or some crazy thing like that, too. So, Well, really, with the, it's, the not- it's all about the reliability, right? <laughs> yeah, so far, as far as I know, there hasn't been an outage. So I've been living here since July. And mm-hmm. uh, as far as I know, it's never been down, but... You guys are killing me, both of you with fiber on your house. That's it. I'm moving up to where you live, Josh. I mean, gosh, <laughs> hook me up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's get into the meat of this here. So I know you've done a lot of support and stuff with ZFS over the years. So tell us what's the most interesting ZFS bug you've maybe come across so far. Well, um, you know, I was thinking about that. The, the most interesting bug that I've ever come across um, is we moved from... Uh, ZFS version 28 to feature flag mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. at the same time that we moved from Samba 3 to Samba 4. And uh, Samba 4 has native support for for ACLs. Mm-hmm. And um, and Samba 3 sort of faked it and used, and used Unix permissions behind the scenes. And it turned out that if you did not upgrade your zpool, and use the feature flag 5000 kernel modules with Samba 4.1 with a pool created on version 28, you could corrupt your pool. Really? And Yep. Blow away the space map and end up with uh, kernel panics when you tried to import the pool read-write. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so we, you know, you had to import the pool read-only and copy the data off and then scrag it and, and, uh, and rebuild it because, of course, there's no... No tools for dealing with a ZFS uh, pool with a bad space map. Mm. So that's probably the most interesting bug. Um, How long did it take you guys to figure that out? Yeah, a little while. <laughs> right. And, and the, best, the best part about that bug is uh, send and receive snapshot replication would happily send the corruption over to the remote system as well. Mm. So we actually lost some primary pools and some backup pools. Um, to that, you know, where the primary pool go corrupted, and then oh, the backup pool is corrupted as well. Oh, yeah, that, that was a little less than pleasant. So, but oh, man. it's probably the most interesting one. So, but the pool wouldn't import, <laughs> but the data was still there. Yeah, yeah, you could import it read only right. because then you don't care about the space mm-hmm. map, and so so that's what we ended up doing. In fact, it ended up on a it was a uh, we ended up doing a. Uh, uh, Memorial Day recovery run down to LA where I loaded my truck up with uh, pallets of four terabyte hard drives and shelves and ended up driving them down from Silicon Valley to LA and over the long weekend recovered a recovered a system that had that mm-hmm. problem. So, Oh man. <laughs> I guess you don't have to do too many of those up in Wisconsin now. No, no. no. <laughs> But you know, there's a joke about never underestimate the bandwidth of a station wagon filled with magnetic tape, yep. <laughs> and never underestimate the storage capacity of a full-size SUV filled with four terabyte hard drives mm-hmm. either. 
So, yeah. yeah, I think uh, Google still does that experiment every once in a while and finds that it's faster to ship hard drives FedEx than it is to uh, try to use the internet, no matter how fast your internet is. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah we had about 300 terabytes in the back of the truck, so nice. Tracy was pretty happy with that. Oh, I bet. <laughs> Although now I can fit that in like eight U's. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so how difficult is it to actually support ZFS in production, uh, you know, especially compared to other file systems? Yeah, so um, there's a few things that are frustratingly game over situations with ZFS that you wish weren't. Mm -hmm. For instance, um, if you add VDEVs that you're not particularly happy about adding, um, you can paint yourself into a corner there. Now there's there's talk about there being detachable VDEVs someday. Um, So Um, there's code for that that actually works, but it doesn't work with RAID Z, only with mirrors and stripes. But that does okay. solve yeah. the problem of when you're trying to add a S log or something and you accidentally uh, add it yeah. as a single disk stripe. Yeah. Uh, so that's yeah, that's unfortunate. That, that's that that <laughs> is or will be undoable, but not in a way that it will still leave it there as a reminder. So any data that got written to it will be remapped to a different drive, but it will stay there as a virtual VDEV that just can't store anything to taunt you about your mistake forever. (laughs) Mocking me silently for years to come. But yeah, I almost feel like... Go forever won't dominate your destiny, right? right. It it almost seems like... Anyways, so that's frustrating. That that can be somewhat frustrating, um, and uh, that's caused, caused some problems in the past. Um, it makes it makes it frustrating to deal with because a lot of times in a production environment, backing up all the data, destroying the pool, and recreating the pool are, is not a particularly attractive option. Because it'll take like and a week. So, uh, yeah, or yeah, that can there can be that. Um, you know, even in some environments where you have the additional storage to do it, simply migrating the data. You know, you can do sends and receives on the back end. But eventually, you have to flip the switch, and so that means taking services mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. And when the service is, you know, ice cuzzy and three hundred VMs, it is just a lot of times not a convenient time to do mm-hmm. that. You know, sure. So, so that that can make things challenging. Um, another thing that can make things challenging is the 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 aforementioned uh, ZFS space map. Um, you know, corruption in there, problems in there. there. There's no, there's no check disk. There's no FSIC. There's no anything. I mean, space map corruption is game over. Mm-hmm. Um, you can import the pool read only. You can copy the data off, and that's certainly a much better scenario for a lot of people than than the alternatives. However, it would still be nice to be able to repair those pools, um, and and it's just not an option. You know, having the option. Right. Is you that know, just that you might you might argue that a four hundred terabyte pool might take three weeks to do that too. Um, but uh you know, at least having the option to do it is better than having no no alternative. Yeah, because well, is so, there a technical reason why that doesn't exist or is just nobody's written the tool to do it yet? I think no I think it's nobody's written the tool simply because it it doesn't scale mm-hmm. very well. And so mm-hmm. you very quickly run into these oh it takes yeah. three weeks. Um, well, kind of a thing to do. So, and people going, well, nobody would want to do that. In in ZDB, um, there's and, and they're probably right. in, in ZDB. There's but, one that can scan the space map and try to find lost space, but not actually fix yeah. it. <laughs> but not fix it. Yeah. yeah. So what you'd what you'd want to do is rebuild your space map from the blocks mm-hmm. that are in use on the pool. 
scan cool. the whole pool for blocks that are in use and use those to build a new space map. And that cool. tool doesn't exist. And would have the extra complication of more space will probably be allocated in the meantime. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. right. You need space for mm -hmm. that space map, right? And you certainly wouldn't be able to write to the pool mm -hmm. while you were doing it. So um, some other things that make ZFS a little challenging. Um, you know, people always knew that long raid Z groups would take a long time to resilver. Mm -hmm. Um and that they would take a long time to scrub, um, especially as they filled up. But I think it took, you know, some of these pools were large enough that it took a couple years to get enough data on them to really reap the, the, the full measure of the consequences of that decision. And so, you know, people were deploying these pools with 30, 10 drive RAID Z2 VDEVs this is awesome and this is great and look I have 400 terabytes of storage and they're amazingly resilient and then they get to be 70 or 80 percent full and they have a drive fail and oh my goodness it took three weeks to resilver the drive you know or it took two weeks to resilver or it took nine days to resilver or something um, so some of those things are starting to come to light and uh, and and those were not immediately obvious properties of ZFS Mm -hmm. So the other thing that isn't immediately obvious is those resilver times are totally dependent on file size as mm -hmm. well. So, you know, if you have a pool with 4 billion 4K files on it, resilvering a drive in there is a lot different than having 100 one terabyte mm -hmm. files. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't immediately obvious either. So um, I think some of those things are starting to come to light. And that, that does get a bit frustrating because... You know, in those very large pools, if you have a single degraded drive and a VDEV, you have additional redundancy. However, it's not the sort of thing that you want a three-year-old array cranking away at maximum I.O. for nine yeah. days. Mm -hmm. You know, it just doesn't make anybody feel good. Right. And the consequence is, you know, 400 terabytes might just go away here if this goes sideways. So mm -hmm. um, that makes things a little challenging. You know, certainly the benefits of the RAID Z resilver when the array is empty are, are, is really cool. You know, you can do a drive replacement in seconds on an empty array, mm -hmm. minutes on a lightly used array. But but as they get full, um, the the tables quickly turn to favor the hardware RAID controllers. Yeah. So right. I know uh, specifically because of that, in the case of mirrors, there's actually talk of an optional. Uh, sequential resilver instead of actually walking the metadata and doing the smart resilver because once it's more than about half full it actually takes longer to do it the smart way uh, but yeah. again I don't know that mm. that's possible with RAID Z because you don't actually know where the blocks start and end without crawling through the data right Right. and then mm. but yeah it seems like maybe uh, the ZFS add command should require you to use like the force flag if you want to add a a single striped VDEV to a pool that has any VDEVs that aren't all stripes, <laughs> just to maybe prevent some of that foot shooting. Yep. Yeah. The the ZFS add command definitely warns if redundancy levels mm -hmm. are different these days. Mm -hmm. So so there is some warning for that, and it has that minus n flag so that you can always see what mm -hmm. you're doing. Um. So it so just that requires people to know to do that. <laughs> and and no one remembers yeah, until they've shot their own foot off once. <laughs> and yeah, and the other the other problem with FreeBSD is 
you know, your, your tendency is to want to use virtualized device mm -hmm. names. And mm -hmm. so, you know, to avoid device name hopping around and making, making you sad. And so a lot of times when you're adding devices to pools, you're dealing with GPT IDs mm -hmm. or some other type of label. And so, you know, you might not even immediately realize that you skipped a line reading glabel list and, uh, you know, that's not really the hard drive that's an SSD or, you know, it, it, it isn't always immediately obvious that you're doing something that you mm -hmm. don't want to do. So I get very, very paranoid when I'm running zpool yep. ad. I, I use the M flag about three times and am I sure I want to do this? Am I absolutely sure? Am I really, really sure? And of course, you know, FreeNAS and TrueNAS, we've wrapped all that stuff in a GUI and it's ostensibly user, you know, Proof. user doable. And, and, and you, you always kind of like, hey, we're going to be expanding our pool this weekend. It's like, can we help with that, please? Because that is something you really don't. Well, it's going to be Saturday night. It's like, yeah. You know, I would much rather hop on a call with you on Saturday night than Have you do uh, this wrong? deal with the yeah. ramifications of yeah. sideways. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The desperate Sunday morning. Oh, my gosh, what did I do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it makes me, you know, expanding storage, it's always sort of a miracle to me when you expand storage and it doesn't, it's always my nightmare, you know, that you go mm -hmm. to expand storage and all of a sudden everything <laughs> vanishes. Sure. You're like, what, 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 what just happened here? Fortunately, I've never seen that happen with ZFS, and I'm, I'm fairly confident. But, you know, when you're dealing with large amounts of data, you know, it's, you know, use 500, 700 terabyte, one petabyte pools, and it's just, it, it'd really be inconvenient if they went away. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, no we have a backup, but it would take it, a month to restore. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that stuff is, nobody would be nope. very happy about that. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, over the last couple of years, we've been talking a lot, of course, about IX, who's a sponsor here. But they've built some pretty darn wild systems that we've shown pictures of and kind of make all the watchers and listeners drool over. So do you have a favorite out of any of the crazy stuff that you know got built down there? Um, you know, th we've got some pretty big systems. Um, some of them bigger than others. Mm -hmm. uh, that. There is some eight eight shelf units um, out there with four terabyte drives in them, um, and those would be the old the old shelves. So they're forty five drives per per shelf. Oh wow! Um, you know, a, a lot of those units were not necessarily optimized for size, but were optimized for spindles for running VMware. Mm -hmm. So they aren't even as large as they could be. Because mostly, mostly they're running VMs and things like that that aren't necessarily space intensive, but are IOPS intensive. Um, you know, it, the, our standard hardware platform is a dual E5 um, 2600 of of some sort, and mm -hmm. going up to 512 gigs of RAM. So, so I think some of the stuff, you know, when you start to think about a dual E5 system with 512 gigs of RAM as being mundane, they know you're <laughs> broken by hardware, right? Right. So, yeah, I mean, we have some stuff in the labs that, that is a lot more fun than, uh, than that. And, and at, at one point, we built a system with a ridiculous number of disks, and uh, we had four terabyte drives in it, and it ended up being shy of a petabyte of storage, so we called it the Terrafiler. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that was pretty cool. And then we, we upgraded the drives to six terabytes, and we, we shied away from the obvious name change. And, and, 
people <laughs> marketing, I guess, thought that that wouldn't go over well. So, um, and then on the you know on the systems that aren't as as big but yet still impressive, we have some all SSD mm. rigs running ZFS, <laughs> and um, you know ZFS isn't necessarily optimized for SSDs. It, its write path is pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. And so the performance of ZFS, you know, in an all-out performance war is never going to match things that do less work. You know, if you look at XFS or EXT4 or anything like that, they just don't do as much work writing, and they're always going to have a performance advantage. But there still are people who want the benefits of ZFS and the performance of SSDs behind it. Mm-hmm. And so we have several all-SSD rigs that we've built. You know, they have 20 or 30 SSDs in them, and they can get fairly crushing performance as well, even though... In terms of size, they're not typically very large. You know, you say, "Well, this is ten terabytes or twelve terabytes." Um, Price-wise, there it's interesting. I was just talking to Warner Losh yesterday about the fact that the Fusion IO Octal cost more than my first house, um, <laughs> and that was a big, you know, all-flash storage subsystem in its day. And nowadays, you know, we routinely build things that are twice as fast as an Octal. And while they certainly, you know, aren't cheap, they they sometimes aren't as expensive as my car. So mm-hmm. that's uh, <laughs> I think you're saying, uh, you know, every couple of years we add a zero to the performance and take a zero off the price. Yeah, isn't that the truth? Right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, most of the problems that you see are probably user created, or are more of them the fault of the OS or the management tools or ZFS itself. You know, I see. Um, I see all sorts of problems. Um, certainly, certainly having a copy and write file system uh, available to users is a new paradigm for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so ZFS put you know enterprise storage in the hands of people who had never had to deal with enterprise storage. And so you certainly see a lot of problems caused you know by the fact that hey you have snapshots in existence, which means you really can't delete things. And people just, you know, that's a paradigm that people don't mm-hmm. understand. So a lot of full pools, you know, a lot of, hey, I just deleted four terabytes and nothing happened. And, and I ended up with less space uh, than I had before because yeah, of the free yeah, list. <laughs> yeah. So you see a lot of that. You see also a lot of non-intuitive problems that were caused by ZFS itself. And certainly ZFS has, you know, taken a lot of those problems to heart and, and improved itself. Um, or the the developers have improved ZFS. So, for instance, before ZFS had asynchronous delete, um, a common paradigm Mm -hmm. was, well, I put 3 billion files on my NFS server, and now I deleted the data set, and everything went out to lunch. For a week. (laughs) So the system went unresponsive, so I then decided to reboot it. And now it's just stuck, well, with all the lights blinking, and it's not fully booted up, you know. And you had to wait for the delete to happen before it would import the pool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we did a lot of, you know, finding the TXG group before the delete and rolling back the pool to that and and then saying, yeah, you probably can't ever delete that. (laughs) So having things like asynchronous delete, um, you know, really improved improved the world for ZFS. So I I would say that they've been addressing the problems. You know, adding VDEVs that are the wrong redundancy level, um, that certainly is a ZFS problem as far as I'm concerned um, that ZFS causes. Um, that one I think so, is sometimes even just then, a confusion between the difference of 
ZFS add and ZFS attach sound similar and they do very different things? Yes. <laughs> yes, that can happen. Or just forgetting to add the word yep. log, you know? Mm-hmm. You're doing zpool add and you forget to type log and all of a sudden you have another VDEV. Yeah, you know? uh, I saw someone, um, ha- that happened to someone this yeah. week and I'm like, well, yeah, and they're like, but we were planning to add another mirror to our set. I'm like, okay, so what you do is add the other drive to that and yeah. then swap out the SSD for, and then now you have the new mirror and then you can add the log properly. <laughs> so right. you maybe yeah. just it's saved yourself from nerve-wise. shooting yourself in the foot. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I think, I think like most things, users are the source of most, most of the problems, but, but ZFS certainly, you know, ZFS has been around for a decade now. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been around. If you talk to the ZFS developers, of course, it's been around longer. It's than been that. open source but for a decade. It's been around in the hands of people for a decade, and it's still a young, immature file system. You know, I don't think we found all of the bugs in ZFS that you know might not necessarily be a bug. Hey, it's behaving as designed. It takes three weeks to resilver. You know, but it's sort of yeah, that's not really very enterprise mm-hmm. usable. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think we probably haven't found all those edge cases, but you know, as we found some, I, I would say async delete was yes. a huge one. You know, that that caused a lot of very real problems not having that, mm-hmm. and certainly since that's hit, um, it solved it solved a lot of problems. Um, bookmark support was was another big one that that sort of shored up a glaring hole in ZFS. Um, you know, when you're using snapshots for replication, if you accidentally you know, if your retention time is shorter than the time it takes you to replicate them, you can have all sorts of problems. And have to you start know, over. You're deleting snapshots that you actually need, you mm-hmm. know, and, and bookmarks sort of solve that problem, you know, by letting you, by letting you uh, delete things that haven't been replicated yet and still, and still be able to not break your replication. Yeah, that one uh, bit us uh, with the PCBSD package uh, CDN system as if if one machine got too far behind and missed the window of when enough snapshots exist, it basically had to start replication from scratch and resend 500 yeah. gigabytes over the internet. Yeah, that can be very no fun. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, so one thing uh, that happened a few months back, you know, we read the article on IX Systems site where you did the blog post talking about uh, being careful using ZFS in a VM, and there was some big scary language in there. And we had a whole bunch of comments and emails, and we still occasionally get those, Alan, where people are like, what, is that? what did that mean? So can you elaborate a little bit exactly on what that blog was talking about and what to do or not to do, I guess, when running ZFS in a VM? Sure, sure. So well, the first thing to point out is VMware is the single most plat- popular platform for running FreeNAS there is. Mm-hmm. Um, FreeNAS systems phone home and tell us what they're running on, and VMware is the most popular standalone platform. Um, by like heads and shoulders. So lots of people virtualize FreeNAS, and of course FreeNAS is ZFS under the hood. So mm-hmm. so that's the only file system they're running. So the the thing about virtualizing ZFS is you're you're abstracting the disks away from from ZFS, which means it's no different than running it against a SAN LUN or running it against a RAID controller. ZFS no longer has direct control of the hardware. Mm-hmm. And so you just need to ensure that the things that are being done to those to those devices is not um, n- not something that that ZFS will get upset about. 
So for instance, if you're virtualizing ZFS and the backend LUNs that have a RAID controller, you need to turn the write cache off on the RAID controller. You need to make sure that any scrubs that are being done by the RAID controller itself are not overlapping with scrubs being done by ZFS. So you have to take some additional steps and the consequences of not taking those additional steps are they can stomp on each other and cause pool corruption. Mm -hmm. So, And I've seen pool corruption in the form of the pool won't import anymore or, or it'll corrupt the space map and you can't import read-write anymore. So, so we've, we've always recommended that you know, virtualizing ZFS is okay, as is running it on a RAID controller, as is running it on SAM. Lots of people do that. For instance, Delphix, that's what they do. They're ZFS on top of a SAM, right? It, it's clearly safe to do. However, it involves making sure that you know, you've turned off the RAID cache on the RAID controller for those LUNs or that you've you know, disabled the parity check jobs on the RAID controller or that you make sure they're scheduled at a different time than the ZFS scrubs. Um, and so if you do those things, then, then virtualizing ZFS is perfectly safe. Mm -hmm. um, running, running a system that has ZFS in a VM, pretty safe. In fact, we do it all the time. The vast majority of FreeNAS and TrueNAS development is done in VMs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we don't, we don't store data there um, you know, long term, but you know, uh, for instance, the IX Systems mail server is a VM and it's running ZFS. So it can be done safely. Mm -hmm. uh, you just have to be a little careful about it. So. There's some extra precautions to take, you know, things to plan out ahead of time before you just nilly-willy deploy it and find out Correct. the hard way, right? And I'd much rather scare people with, you shouldn't do this. It's a bad idea to do this. Don't do this. And have them find out some more information about it and say, okay, I'm doing this safely. Then to say, yeah, it'll be fine when there's some... You know, every RAID controller made has the read, write cache enabled. Right, because that's what makes it which fast. Is, you know, yeah. <laughs> which is, uh, you know, a, a, a bad deal when you're sticking ZFS on a VM underneath it. Right, so, so you, you don't want somebody yeah. that doesn't understand all the facets of it to be like, oh, I'm going to run, uh, you know, this on top of, uh, in, in a VM on top of a RAID controller because Josh said it was okay. It's like, no, no, right. Josh said don't right. do it unless you're very sure you know what you're doing and you've ticked all these right. boxes and made sure you've actually got it set up correctly. Exactly, exactly. So yeah. uh, so to get a more uh, experienced field ops perspective, uh, what do you think about ZFS with versus without ECC memory? And is it any more dangerous than running something other than ZFS? Well, um the answer, as always, is it's complicated. Right. And, and this is a very touchy political situation because some people who have a lot of experience and knowledge about ZFS have weighed in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm pretty sure Matt Ahrens has said there's no need for ZFS to have well, ECC. Well, his quote was more, so. you always want ECC, but if you can't have it, you're still better off with ZFS than using ext4. Yeah. There we mm -hmm. go. All right. So, so... So let's talk about that for a second. So if you have ECC RAM and something goes haywire, your system will either stop or ECC will fix the problem. Mm -hmm. If you don't have ECC RAM, your system will happily go lucky scribbling on disks, whatever it tells it to do. The problem comes in with ZFS is, once again, there's no way to fix things like broken space maps. Mm -hmm. 
And so if you have non-ECC RAM and it's been happily scribbling on your pool and it happens to scribble on your space map, that's a game over effect. So, so you know, your, your pool is gone. If you have non-ECC RAM and EXT4 or XFS or anything like that and it scribbles on your storage device, you run FSIC and it repairs the storage. Sure, you might have some files that are scragged, you know, because FSIC isn't going to make corrupted files go away. But at the end of the day, it will happily move that stuff into lost and found, and, and you'll be able to mount up your file system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in theory, um, while, you know, the advantages of ZFS are nice to have, it is a bit dangerous to run non-ECC RAM and have hardware failures with with ZFS simply because there are a lot of scenarios in ZFS that are game over. So, so we don't ever build anything that's non-ECC. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to admit that I have very limited experience running non-ECC RAM on ZFS. So I had some systems at home for several years that had non-ECC RAM. And other than that, it's just not something we we choose to choose to uh, don't want our chance mm-hmm. to deal with yeah and and quite frankly anytime you're dealing with a system with a large amount of ram ecc becomes necessary just just from right reasons, you know you, most motherboards won't support yeah. more than 32 gigs of ram without ecc anyway <laughs> right right so hmm. so i always recommend to people that they run <laughs> ecc and there's plenty of plenty of consumer stuff out there now that has the ability to run yes, ecc like the little so, atom boards and but yeah, I think okay. uh, in the end, other than obviously the space map uh, is kind of a, a Achilles heel of ZFS still. Uh, but if something happens to the contents of a file, ZFS is more likely to be able to actually tell that that happened and give you an error rather than the corrupted data. Whereas if you corrupt just a file, FSEK on uh, ext4 isn't going to find that. No, and, no. And so, I mean, BitRod yeah, is a real yeah. problem. On, uh, especially as disks get larger, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you know you can easily, for you know under a thousand dollars these days, be sitting on twenty-four or thirty terabytes of storage. And anytime you put, you know, fill that up, the the chances of bit flips and files being corrupted, and you know, I mean that, that's significant. You know, if you run a, if you run a pool. That's forty terabytes, and don't scrub it for a year and run scrub. I can guarantee you, your chances are good that you're going to find corrupted files that ZFS will either fix or flag as as I can't fix this, depending on your redundancy mm-hmm. level. So, so having ECC RAM, you know, is is a safeguard against hardware mm-hmm. failure. You know, either the system will stop or or it will fix the problem. Um, but you know, it, it all depends once again on how, you know, how important mm-hmm. your data is. I have data at home. I could care less if I lost it. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, if, if I really need to, I can recreate it. I have other data that is, that is mm-hmm. irreplaceable, you know? So, so the data I have that's irreplaceable, it goes to two systems at home. It goes to a backup system and it goes up yeah. to the cloud, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and certainly my systems at home have ECC RAM, but, 
you know, it wouldn't be a huge loss if I lost the pool on one of them. Right, but yeah, in the end, sure. the whole reason you're using ZFS is to protect you against hardware failures on the disks. So why wouldn't you also protect yourself from hardware failures in the RAM? Uh, what about uh, SSDs? Cool. Uh, especially you were talking about all SSD pools. Uh, because SSDs are doing a bunch of, you know, uh, was it like a flash redirection layer or whatever, and there's moving blocks all over the place without telling you, do you ever see uh, unusual amounts of errors from SSDs? You know, I, I haven't. Um, but But SSDs have their own unique challenges with ZFS. For instance... Um, when ZFS grew trim support, um, it was trying to trim 128K blocks, and that exposed uh, problems in a lot of SSDs. So, um, for instance, uh, you know, you'd run into situations where you'd run ZPool create, and the system would just go out to lunch for hours. You know, mm -hmm. while while the SSD was trying to digest this, hey, it wants me to trim all of me. You know, but in small chunks, not all at once. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that that was a problem. Um, we've had issues. I've had issues with SSDs that the firmware simply locks up. Yeah. I, I've seen I've seen SSDs that that you know you have trim on, and over you know a couple of weeks, the firmware finally just hangs the whole SSD. I, I've I've seen particular models of that. Um, and so, for instance, we've had to blacklist doing trim on certain SSDs, or simply not mm -hmm. use them. Um, for ZFS, so so they definitely uh, pose some challenges. Another challenge that SSDs provide that isn't really really um, related to ZFS per se is they can handle much higher Q depths than spinning disks, and ZFS is tuned to not uh, blow blow spinning disks up. So you can turn the if you have an all SSD pool, you can turn the Q depth up and uh, get far higher performance mm -hmm. out of them than you would with the default ZFS tuning. However, ZFS doesn't allow that tuning per pool. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so if you have a system that has an SSD pool and a spinning disk pool, you can be challenged to find uh, uh, a uh, tuning that doesn't tank your spinning disk pool or your SSD pool. Because, of course, the things the SSD pool wants will bring the, bring the spinning disk pool to its knees. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, if you tune for the spinning disk pool, you're really crippling the performance of the SSD. Pool. Yeah, I think the, the default so. like write queue depth limit is ten, and uh, 10. if you yeah. set it much higher on a spinning disk, then it could take whole seconds to get a read request answered. <laughs> yes, because oh, it gets at the back of this long line of things that have to happen. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, a, a seventy-two hundred RPM disk has an average latency of seven milliseconds, which means it can do, you know, somewhere around 100 to 150 IOPS per, you know. And uh, if you set the Q depth to 32, you will definitely feel that. Uh, definitely beat what you sow there. Right, a little suffering. Whereas, involved. you know, a modestly expensive SSD can do a thousand times that. So if you could offer, just pick, say, one single best piece of advice for a system in who's getting ready to deploy ZFS somewhere out in the field, what would it be? <laughs> That's right? a challenging one. <laughs> um, I would say be familiar with the, the attributes of a copy-on-write file system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so if you've got experience with Waffle or with EMCs or, or something like that, um, transfer that 
add experience and that knowledge to ZFS. If you don't have experience with a copy and write file system of any sort, do some reading because there, there are things, there are just attributes of copy and write file systems that aren't intuitive. Uh, and since ZFS is so different from log file systems or from you know, journal-based file systems that we're all familiar with, um, you can run into some really non-intuitive behavior. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. Uh, so if you could see any one feature of ZFS uh, be implemented, what would it be? Oh, that's easy. So um, I would really like to see whole pool replication mm-hmm. between two pools. Block level, real-time, whole pool replication. So like continuous replication? Pool. Yeah. Yes. Not right. snapshot-based, not async at all, but just you send this TXG group to this pool, you send it to that pool. Um, and and, a, and a, the ability to keep two pools in sync on an IO by IO or TXG by TXG basis. So. And uh, that's kind of cool. Is anybody working on that as far as you know? <laughs> I, I, I know somebody that would like to do it if they could convince their employer to pay them to do it. <laughs> yeah. I, I've done some precursory exploration and I've always... You know, I think it'd be a really cool feature to have, and certainly there are business cases for it. And working for a storage-based ZFS company, you know, tried to poke and prod in the appropriate direction. As far as I know, nobody is actually actively working on this project at all. However, it has been discussed to some degree, and and uh, and um, you know, some how would we implement this types of things have been kicked around. What technologies? Could this apply to you know? Is there anything that's relevant? Um, you know that that sort of investigation has been done. So I somehow feel that perhaps um, you know it, that that could see the light of day. Would I work out on myself? I always I always like to joke <laughs> that I'm the most dangerous type of C programmer. The most dangerous type of C programmer is the one that can get their programs to compile. Mm-hmm. And that's right. So. So the ability, to, you know, the the barrier to entry to programming C is is pretty high because if you know you can't even get the thing to compile, then at least you know you're safe. I'm unfortunately slightly more skilled than that. However, I'm not much more skilled than that. So I always I always joke that that when when I'm committing C code to anything, which I do from time to time, you, know, you look out. Right. <laughs> so so probably it's not something I would work on myself. Um, in terms of writing the C code, but definitely developing the feature and helping to test it and coming up with use cases and you know, okay, that's not quite right. I would I would love to be involved mm-hmm. with. Um, so so we'll see. Well, there you go. If anybody's working on this or interested, you need to get in touch with John. Yes, I, I will really uh, cool make a connection between two people for that. Cool. So you have any interesting war story? I guess. Uh, the most difficult recovery or anything you could think of that would be interesting to the audience here? You know, there's there's been a lot of things that I've done um, over the past several years. Um, you know, I think a lot of the a lot of the really interesting problems were were the culmination of a long period of research. Um, for instance, when ZFS first debuted, it had very um, unpredictable write times, write latencies, and that made it challenging to use for block storage. And having that, you know, 
having that come together such that ZFS was an effective block storage, um, low latency type of deal or predictable latency, there was a lot of time involved in that and a lot of things had to happen. A lot of work was done. Um, and and that certainly didn't happen overnight. You know, that was the culmination of a year's worth of a year's worth of uh of of effort. Um we've also done some, you know, some pool recoveries where where, you know, the the aforementioned load a bunch of drives in the in the truck and take them down to LA. Um but I think a lot of the the current problems are really just how ZFS interacts with things like Samba, things like NFS and those they're not very interesting war stories. It's I went into the lab with a bunch of NFS servers and came out with, you know, here's how here's how we need to do this. Here's how we need to do that, uh, tuning wise to to get to a satisfying, you know, a satisfying performance profile. So one of the challenging things with running ZFS on big NFS servers is you know big high busy NFS servers on 10 gigi require quite a bit of memory for for NFS and for just the kernel for doing 10 gig networking. And ZFS, of course, is is always memory hungry. And so finding the right balance between enough memory to not hobble your 10 gig performance versus not taking so much memory away from ZFS that you hobble its performance and finding the right balance has been uh, has been fairly fairly um, satisfying. And hopefully, you know, we'll get some better auto-tuning so that it doesn't require a maestro to you know mm-hmm. turn all the dials and yeah, thing, yeah. but um, some of those scenarios have been have been fairly fairly satisfying. But you know, free RAM is wasted RAM. But any contention will just kill all your performance. <laughs> yeah, and of course, you know, ZFS contention for RAM typically means kernel panic, mm-hmm. right? So you know, if the R can't get an allocation it thinks that it deserves, you know, it, it yeah. deadlocks deadlocks the system or live locks or kernel panics or all sorts of bad, nasty, horrible mm-hmm. behaviors. So, you know, you, you tend to want to be very conservative and then, you know, and then you start to say, okay, I've, I've got a system with 128 gigs of RAM. I'm being really conservative with the ARC and I've set it to 70 gigs. Now I can turn up NFS memory arbitrarily high as I want because certainly networking and NFS aren't going to need 30 gigs of RAM. And so then you turn it all up and then you go, okay, we found the optimal value here. Now we need to increase your arc size. Well, we'll have to reboot the system. Well, we'll find a window for that in March, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. because you can't dynamically increase arc. Or you go the other way and you say, well, we don't want to have to reboot the system, so we're going to just set the arc to 116 gigs. And then you're constantly in fear, okay, is this the NFS memory change I make that tips the system over and causes it to deadlock? You know, so, so some of that stuff is, is a little bit challenging, uh, finding the optimal values. And, of course, you know, networking memory requirements, NFS memory requirements, those are all so workload dependent that you can't come mm-hmm. across any sort of, you know, any sort of useful um, defaults. You sure. know, we have customers that we've had to turn the file handle allocation off, right? Because because otherwise, you know, thirty thousand people try and open eighty thousand files, and suddenly NFS wants you know nine hundred gigs of memory. Oh man! So we've just had to disable it, you know, in order to provide them with a usable system. So so it all it's all across the board, you know. Other people 
their idea of an NFS server is two systems are going to access this, and they want to run wide mm -hmm. open, you know, read or write performance. So you, you just can't come up, come up with usable, you know, global defaults that work for everyone. It it does require some some well, yeah, tuning. I can and, see, you know, a, a university where every student's home directory is on this NFS server versus a thing where you know we have two or three virtualization machines <laughs> that are just going to read giant VM images off your NFS, right? Right. Right. Do you think yeah. it would be possible to someday have the arc limit be runtime tunable? Yeah, in fact, I've talked about that quite a bit, and, and I think we understand what the how that would work. It would essentially be setting a high water mark instead of you can't forcibly evict memory mm -hmm. out of arc, but you could lower the high water such that as it DL as things fell off the arc, it wouldn't allocate new mm -hmm. things. So mm -hmm. you could do that fairly easily. And then increasing it, of course, would be pretty straightforward right. as well. So, oh, that'd so be hopefully neat. that will see the light of day someday. Too. Yeah, the one I was having this morning, actually, and yesterday morning, uh, was uh, the daily uh, find that goes through the system and tries to find the uh, set UID binaries or whatever. Uh, ever since I upgraded yeah. to the latest head three days ago, uh, now it makes the other allocation in ARC go up to about 6 gigs out of my 16 gigs. So the, my arc limit is set to six gigs out of sixteen, and so it's got six gigs of you know MFU and MRU, but then also six gigs of uh, other, and then and then yeah. there's no RAM left for anything else. <laughs> right. And right. it was I, I don't know what made it start doing this just the other day. Yeah, and and of course the ZFS answer to that is well serves you right for trying right. to run it on a system with sixteen yeah. gigs of RAM, right? <laughs> Isn't that crazy that we think that that's a low amount of RAM? Yeah, I remember when, you know, yeah. 512 was a lot. Oh. <laughs> now, 512 yeah. with an extra triple zero on the end is kind of a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> so what keeps you motivated to work on open source stuff like this? Um, You know, I think... You know, I was thinking about that a little bit. I've been involved with FreeBSD since the mid-90s. Um, and and that was really more of a pragmatic thing than, than anything else. When I started my involvement, you know, my employer was trying to convert to open source. And so it was just easier to be involved in the community um, than it was to, to constantly try to have to maintain local patch sets and all of that fun stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's just sort of a... Uh, um, a couple of things. One, the reality is working on commercial code bases, they're all sort of ugly. Um, and the mo more closed source and secretive they are, the more the uglier they are. Because, you know, as a as when you're writing code, you're you're trying to solve the immediate problem. You're always under a time crunch. There's always resource constraints. And you can do some fairly hideous things. Um, and, no and one just go, you know, well, I hope nobody ever sees this because if they do, they will hate the person that wrote it and think they're an idiot, but they're not under my constraints. So here's the most horrible hack I've ever written, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but you can't open source those kinds of things because there's always people who are going to look at that and go, dude, uh, really? You know, yeah. like, come on. And so, so open source really to me becomes sort of, you know, you, you sludge through the day. And you're kind of sludging through a mud pit, you know, and it's all dirty and hacky and, 
you're kind of going along and and certainly we try and do things the right way but a lot of times there's other concerns other than the purity of engineering right mm -hmm. but when you get to get home and and take the cover off of that beautiful thing that pristine beauteous thing you, you can kind of hey i'm going to do this right or not do it at all and mm -hmm. you know a lot of what's going on in open source is you know people who are doing it right or not doing it at all and sometimes you have companies committing code and then you have a bunch of people going ah what horribleness have you inflicted upon us allow us to make that more beautiful for you um but but i i just find it refreshing mm -hmm. it's just in a world of of sludge and awful hacks and things open source is oftentimes a much higher quality code base than than what you'll run into otherwise and and so uh, it's nice to to work on that. I also try as much as possible to to provide value to people. Like somehow I feel like if I've lived my life and it didn't benefit anybody, then what was the point? Mm -hmm. And so I, I like to think that somehow I made the world a slightly better place. And if it was using open source to build a system that did um, research into genetic diseases, then you know the world was a slightly better place. And and so that motivates me as well to keep to keep working on this. And you know, I think you know why do I use FreeBSD? Why why you know ZFS? I I don't really have a good answer for that other than it was just circumstance. You know, when I said to a friend of mine a long time ago I'd like to learn Unix, he handed me a FreeBSD CD. You know, mm -hmm. um, when I when I was in college and. The chem lab was full of Sun OS machines. You know, it's more circumstance anything as to why I use BSD. But eventually, you just get to a point where it's like, well, yeah, this could be any project. Like I could contribute to Postgres or Linux or whatever, but but I don't, and that's not what I've been doing. And so, you know, there's a certain level of ownership that that would just make it very challenging to just go, oh, you know, the pencil is red, the pencil is blue. I switched it out for a different project, and it didn't matter. You know, mm -hmm. so. So I think some of those things keep me motivated. Okay. Well, you have any other hobbies outside of open source when you're not doing computer stuff? You know, I like to wrench on cars, but of course, you know, some of the physical challenges I've faced with has uh, has uh, uh, you know put a little bit of a cramp in that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I still enjoy things that go fast or make loud noises. <laughs> um, so so you know. Uh, guns and fast cars and open source software and computers like I've often dreamed that I'm going to open like this giant warehouse and, and I, I stole this name from a from a Steve Jackson game a long time ago but guys guns guts and gears mm -hmm. just do computers and guns and, and an automotive speed shop and just have it all be under one roof you know like I think that would just be awesome like you know be like the gander mountain of, of technology geeks there you go something. anyways but, uh, yeah, so I, I like those kinds of things. And, of course, you know, living out in the woods here in Wisconsin allows us to do outdoorsy stuff, you know, and, and do all that fun stuff. And, and I definitely enjoy that. So. Yeah, cool. cool. Okay. okay. Well, I look forward to seeing that shop open up someday. I know. I yeah. that. <laughs> I always love it when the guys cover a new release and FreeBSD11 is out. But first, we got to talk about our sponsor, and that's Tarsnap. You own the key, so only you can decrypt the backup. That's a key point for me. Tarsnap makes 
so much sense and gives you true peace of mind. Online backups for the truly paranoid and for those of us that really know better. Tarsnap runs on Unix-like operating systems, BSD, Linux, Mac OS, SigWin2 under Windows. And I wonder if anybody's tried it under Bash on Windows 10. I wonder if, uh, I wonder if Alan or Chris knows. It's a really great system, and it's built by somebody that we know and trust. Tarsnap.com slash BSD now. When you're considering backup for yourself, for your business, or your family, I really can't recommend anybody else. They're the ones that where you truly own the key, and they can't get access to your data. And they have a really intelligent bug bounty program that even even makes pay, payments out for things like cosmetic errors in the, in the source code, which I think is a great system to make sure that there's always eyes on the code. Always people looking for flaws. It's pretty great. Tarsnap.com slash BSD now. And a big thank you to Tarsnap for sponsoring the BSD Now program all year. It is a great service and it's the ones I recommend to my friends and family. Now let's transition to BSD Now episode 163, the return of Cantrell and the announcement and discussion around FreeBSD 11. But uh, we have a lot of news to get to, including the new uh, FreeBSD 11.0 release now is officially out. I it, it's officially dropped, so if you had seen the earlier images on the FTP server, like, no, 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 you have a new one now. That's the real deal. But uh, tell us a little bit why that happened, Alan. What was the Yeah, so there? as we mentioned the other week, uh, a last-minute reroll to pick up uh, an OpenSSL updates and then the updates to those OpenSSL mm-hmm. updates and uh, bundle a bunch of other security fixes in with that. It meant the release ended up a little bit behind schedule. It was, I think, supposed to be October 5th, and it came out on the 9th. Uh, but... Uh, you can now download FreeBSD 11. It will actually be uh, 11.0 release-p1 to include the uh, patches. Uh, that was mostly sure. so that anyone who did download the old one will be able to update to this and uh, have it correct. Uh, so that's good. Uh, and you know the release is better for all that extra effort from the release engineering team. Uh, but some highlights of the release are improved uh, 802.11n support and various Wi-Fi drivers, including IWM, so that your yep. Wi-Fi on your modern Intel laptops will work. Uh, support mm-hmm. for ARM64 has been added and is uh, pretty much tier one, which is a, a big deal for anybody that wants to do something like that, especially the Cavium server-style ARM64s. Uh, that's nice. Beehive has native graphics support, so you can actually run Windows installer and do it without having to do all headless. That mm-hmm. was a big deal. Uh, for quality of life things, the uh, the flag in etctty's on if console has been set. Mm-hmm. So if you actually boot up and uh, your you know uh, dev ptyu zero is your console, it will automatically turn on, and if it's not, it won't. Uh, allowing you to, sure. to basically, if you enable serial console, you don't have to go and edit this other file. Uh, the one of the big reasons yeah. this made a difference was obviously that. Uh, when you boot Beehive in headless mode, it uses the serial console. Mm-hmm. And by default in FreeBSD 8 and before. 9, you would have to edit the image after you built it before you run it to actually uh, let you, you know, do <laughs> to have a serial console. Mm-hmm. Now the file set up so it automatically turns on if it's the console and turns off if it's not the console, which is quite nice. Oh, that's great. Um, mm-hmm. The XZ utility for uh, XZIP uh, now supports multi-threaded compression. If you're making a large XZIP of something, this makes a huge difference. When you know you can use sure. all 24 or 32 of your cores on your server instead of one. Uh, you know, if you're mm-hmm. going to do a, a ZFS send, don't pipe it through GZIP. Pipe it through XZIP with threading, and it makes a big difference. Uh, yeah, that's a huge. number of uh, kernel panics related to VNet have been fixed, so that uh, feature's got more usable. Um, 
the speaking of which we're turning that on finally in, in yes. true OS now since it looks like it's stable enough you can actually use pf with it uh we're going to try and confirm that this next week uh the uh image activation config uh, option for the kernel has been enabled by default which means you can use the bin mis uh yeah bin mis control to uh make certain binaries run through qmu user land uh so this is what's mm-hmm. required to be able to use pudrier to build packages for ARM and MIPS and, and so on on your x86. Sure. Uh, so that's really helpful. That, that's actually in a release now. You don't have to run head anymore to mm-hmm. actually be able to compile uh, cross-compile packages at high speed. Uh, the generic kernel also includes IPsec by default now. Uh, and the resource control stuff is also uh, compiled in by default, but it's disabled by a sysctl. So it's not actually running by default, but it's compiled. And if you want to use it, you just flip the kernel or the uh, sysctl and it works. You don't have to recompile your kernel. Mm-hmm. That's yes, easy I'd like enough. to see more and more of that as we get uh, out towards <coughs> this never having to recompile your kernel for features kind of thing. Yeah, it'd be nice just to have one kernel to rule them yep. all and just not have her have to change settings. Uh, like Alt-Q, can we just get that? We turn that mm-hmm. on by default in TrueOS. Oh, like, I just people use DummyNet, so I don't need it, but yeah. Well, but other people yes, need exactly. Alt-Q for PF. Yeah. You know? uh, that seems like one that could be on by default. Um, another mm-hmm. interesting one, you can now configure kern.os release and kern.os rel date uh, for jails. So before hmm. you could you could install you know FreeBSD nine in a jail running on your FreeBSD eleven machine, but when you ran uname in the jail, it would show up as an eleven kernel. If you ran you know yeah. uname minus capital U, you would see you have a nine three user land, but it would mm-hmm. uname report the wrong kernel. Now you can uh, override those. Uh, in the jail so that it will actually report that it's FreeBSD 9.3. And that can be a big deal. Is is any of that automatic or do you have to Uh, override it? It's not automatic. You have to tell it that, you know, this jail is going to be 9.3 and then it will lie sure. to the, op- the applications. So you, so you can use it to lie in other ways to the yeah. jail too? Like, you think you're this. Yeah, so you can actually make it think it's okay. newer, but that probably won't work. But right. you can definitely make it think it's older. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I know, you know some people still have FreeBSD 4.11 jails running binaries. <laughs> they don't have the source to recompile and that this will probably yep. make that work a little better. Nice. Uh, also, huge one for me, the minimum and maximum size of the ZFS adaptive replacement cache or the ARC uh, can now be modified at runtime. So you can oh, just be nice. like, I need more of my memory back to run a virtual machine. So trim back the arc. Mm-hmm. And then I'm done with that virtual machine. I would like more speed. Trim, push the arc back up. Uh, that makes a huge difference. Uh, yeah, that's yep. nice. Uh, and of course, the chat room reminds me, yes, uh, also the support for booting from an entirely encrypted hard drive is also there. Uh, that's some stuff I worked on. Uh, and then some things to watch out for that changed in FreeBSD 11. Uh, OpenSSH DSA key generation has been disabled by default. So if you do a fresh install of 11, there won't be uh, DSA keys generated by your SSHD. Um, and um, when you upgrade, it will stop uh, updating that key. Uh, so make sure you have your SSH keys updated prior to upgrading. Otherwise, uh, you sure. might not be able to connect. Also, support for protocol version one has been removed entirely. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, nobody should have been it's using gone. that for ten years now. So, <laughs> so hopefully that one doesn't trip anybody up. 
Um, yep. uh, by default, if config will set the default regulatory, uh, regulatory domain uh, for FCC on wireless interfaces. As a result, newly created wireless interfaces will default uh, will have default settings that are less likely to violate country-specific regulations. If you're in a different mm -hmm. region like Japan, you'll want to tell it that so that uh, it enables the use of uh, channel 14 or whatever it is that Japan's allowed to use. Sure. Uh, and then there was that caveat from last week. Uh, an issue has been discovered with Amazon EC2 images, uh, which would cause the virtual machine to hang during boot uh, when upgrading from FreeBSD 10.3 or earlier to 11. The new EC2, uh, if you do a new EC2 installation, it's not infect affected at all, but uh, upgrading existing ones is affected, and you're advised not to upgrade until the errata notice comes out. That Aratus uh, should come out any day now. Uh, the next next couple of days, it'll be out, uh, and it'll describe uh, or it will include uh, the fix to allow you to to upgrade your EC2 images uh, and anything else that turns out will have this problem. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. So again, beware. Just give it a little time. That Aratus notice will be out shortly. Be patient. <laughs> I will admit, I have a secret passion for NetBSD, and I've heard of all of the crazy things that NetBSD runs on, but this was really something special. We got to hear from the NetBSD Foundation and how they operate and assist NetBSD behind the scenes. This week, we're joined by uh, Petra Zeidler, who's a NetBSD developer. Thank you for taking time to talk to us today. Hello. Hello. Uh, so the first question we always ask people is, how did you first get introduced to Unix and BSD? Um, it's all the fault of Markus Wild, who in uh, between uh, 1993 and 1994 um, uh, ported NetBSD to the Amiga, mm -hmm. and uh, NetBSD 1.0 came out with Amiga support, and a month after it came out, my Amiga um, was running NetBSD, and it still is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, which gives us the um, uh, funny situation um, uh, that um, I have a system uh, that could drink beer in the US. <laughs> yes, it's old. <laughs> and is older uh, than quite a few of my co workers. <laughs> and it still runs um, uh, my mail service mm -hmm. and Usenet use. It is a Usenet um, a new server. When it started out, it was a UECP node. Mm -hmm. Of course, UECP is long gone. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but if I wanted to, it's um, it used to be in the world map as Serpents, mm -hmm. and uh, these days it's uh, Serpents.de. Oh. Cool. Uh, so you wear many different hats with, yeah. uh, between NetBSD and the uh, EuroBSD Foundation mm -hmm. and so on. So could you tell us a little bit about yeah. that? Um, when I joined um, NetBSD as a developer, well, um, not so much uh, in the function of uh, development. I had been gotten an offer to become a developer before, but strictly speaking, um, I'm not very much into uh, creating stuff. Um, I need to be very relaxed to start uh, uh, fiddling with new stuff. Usually when I do something, it's, uh, wow, this bug dies now. <laughs> yes. yeah. So um, uh, I was asked by uh, um, um, uh, uh, Tracy DeMarco White, uh, who was uh, then um, 
uh, the main uh, admin mm -hmm. of uh, the NetBSD Foundation if I uh, didn't like to join admins. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I did. So uh, this is also still the main hat I'm wearing. Um, uh, to be on the admins team, uh, usually if a new account gets created um, uh, or uh, if users have problems uh, or things like that, that's mm -hmm. usually um, uh, what I do. Right. I also do um, system updates and um, make sure that uh, the packages uh, that are installed are not vulnerable mm -hmm. as far as possible. Um, which immediately led to the next hat I'm wearing, uh, being on the package source relling team. Um, uh, because there were packages, um, they had um, uh, a fix in uh, package source head, um, and um, uh, the latest stable release of package source was still vulnerable. Right. Um, so you unobtrusively kick the person who had uh, um, uh, submitted the um, uh, uh, the fix to head to submit a pull up, and then do the pull up, and you can stay on the stable branch with the service. Right, and, and, and still get the security updates. Yeah. Yes, we have. Uh, only recently, finally, had something like that in, in FreeBSD where you could have the stable branch of ports instead of only having the head. Yeah, yeah, it's um, uh, more convenient uh, to have it that way because um, no surprises. You um, well, uh, I mean, uh, if you have, for example, a, a Perl update in head, um, it gets to settle for a while. Mm -hmm. You don't have the uh, the situation that one package got updated and half the packages that uh, depend on it haven't been uh, um, uh, fixed up to deal with it yet, mm -hmm. um, which you can get if um, you have something that is very down low in mm -hmm. uh, in the dependency chain. Yes. Um, uh, so usually you have um, uh, on the stable branch. Um, an economy that works together, mm -hmm. which is very useful. Yes. Um, next head. Um, uh, 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 the NetBSD Foundation uh, differs from um, uh, or, uh, the governance of um, uh, NetBSD differs from FreeBSD in um, our core is not elected it's uh, appointed and usually does not change. Um, uh, core is not uh, concerned with uh, membership questions. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, uh, well, uh, Core is doing exclusively the technical side. Right. Um, uh, so, um, uh, instead, uh, the NetBSD Foundation um, is much more central. Every um, uh, person with commit rights is a member of the NetBSD Foundation mm -hmm. and as such has uh, voting rights for the board. And um, uh, the board is um, responsible for making sure that um, the various committees are populated 
um, that they are repopulated if um, they uh, sort of uh, die out, mm -hmm. where most committees, the f uh, functioning ones, um, restaff themselves, right. which is fine if mm -hmm. they do it. And um, uh, of course, board is the one um, who has to distribute um, uh, finances mm -hmm. and do all the legal stuff. And um, <clears throat> um, I had been doing, um, well, helping with the board election mm -hmm. uh, several times in a row, uh, where we use uh, IETF methods to, that is, we determine a slate and that gets uh, voted on. I had been uh, involved with that process because someone had to do it, and I have the infrastructure to do it. And... Um, well, uh, and then um, when I most um, unwisely was not involved in uh, in the voting, I got asked if I uh, uh, couldn't um, um, be a board member. This is how I came to be a board member. Mm -hmm. um, I've, um, uh, I'm now on my um, second term as board member. Um, I had a gap between. I hope to uh, uh, get a gap between um, this term and the next one. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm also a, m a member of the security team, mm -hmm. uh, which is, um, in my case, mostly uh, a thing of um, uh, doing... Um, uh, imports for a new open SSL um, and things like that yep. and then um, creating um, uh, the pull-ups to uh, to the branches uh, getting them through and um, something where we've been somewhat slacking um, but uh, well, we need to pick up again um, uh, create advisories right we usually have the problem that um, um, fixing it in head, snap. Yes. Doing the pull-ups, fairly uh, timely, mm. writing the advisory. Ah, uh, must I? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, that's currently, um, yeah, another head I'm uh, also wearing uh, since we're at uh, yes. EuroBSDCon is um, that I'm the NetBSD representative to the EuroBSD Con Foundation. Right. Which, since I um, visit the, um, um, uh, the conferences and I'm, I'm a board member, used to be a board member, was practical. Yes. Cool. Uh, so what kind of uh, bits of, of NetBSD could we blame you for? Do you have any particular piece of it that you had quite a hand in? Um, I don't actually create much, like right, I said. Yes. Um, uh, what I did create was um, um, I was uh, one of the mentors for uh, the um, uh, IPv6 for NPF. Mm -hmm. um, and um, um, after that was done, uh, we found um, <laughs> out a bit later um, uh, that um, uh, there was a, a gap uh, regarding uh, um, ICMP6, which is not uh, ICMP4 um, um, with um, um, IPv6 addresses, but actually differs, is its own protocol. So I supplied um, 
that part to NPF. Mm -hmm. um, then there's um, uh, various, um, well, um, I wrote the original um, MBUF9 um, man page, right. but that's a long time ago and it has been replaced completely in the meantime. Yeah. And apart from that, um, uh, various uh, fixes more or less um, um, uh, around uh, uh, the, um, uh, the tree where one of my interests is um, networking and IPv6. So if, if something, uh, something breaks there, I'm much more likely to say, okay, I'll fix it myself. Right. Then, uh, well, if something broke in the scheduler, I'd be hard put to A, recognize that it, uh, it yeah. did, and B, uh, fix it because I'm not a computer scientist. Right. I'm an astrophysicist by training mm -hmm. and... Um, um, it's not a question that I couldn't understand it, but I don't have the time to actually learn all yes, that right. I would have, would need to know to, to get that. And right, everybody yeah. who's still um, at university and misses the opportunity to soak up everything they mm -hmm. can get their hands on is missing out. Yes. Yeah, it's, uh, that particular, each particular subsystem has a lot of context that you have to be able to... Yeah. And so it's, it's yeah. much easier to focus on one yeah. thing that you're um, uh, Professionally, um, well, um, when I met um, Annette BSD, I was working at the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy, mm -hmm. um, officially as um, a doctoral student, mm -hmm. um, but um, unofficially I was mostly doing um, system administration. Right. Uh, which also was not so great for my doctoral uh, studies. <laughs> so I, um, I did not finish that thesis. Um, uh, afterwards, I was at um, IT services company. From there, when um, uh, uh, the internet started to take off, mm -hmm. um, I had been um, a board member of um, uh, the individual network EFL which um, uh, only was relevant for about uh, five or six years, but really started off um, the ability for private persons to have internet access in Germany. And then it went bankrupt when uh, all the commercial entities found out that it actually was a market. Mm -hmm. um, and um, was uh, working at uh, two ISPs uh, in the meantime, backbone ISPs, ASR 517 and 1273. Mm -hmm. After that, um, when, um, when we had the um, ISP slump and um, they, I let go lots of people, um, I've been at... Um, uh, an IT service provider as a Unix admin again. And um, um, at the beginning of this year, I started at the German um, aerospace um, agency mm -hmm. um, uh, at the IT engineering group um, uh, for the Earth Observation Center, which is where all the satellite data from the observation um, satellites gets um, collected, archived, very important. Yes and um, also uh, processed. Right. Well, 
um, we come in uh, in uh, um, ad advising people um, uh, how to get uh, the data um, from the, um, the satellite ground station to um, uh, our institute and how to present it securely to other people, mm -hmm. but uh, not at all in um, um, uh, what algorithms to use to process them and so right. on. That's that job. Just the same problem. Just trying to... Well, I mean, uh, that's what they're doing research on. I'm, right. um, uh, we have quite a few uh, research students as well. So. Mm -hmm. um, also, of course, um, uh, that's something... Um, um, that has a high uh, squee factor for mm -hmm. a geek. Yes. <laughs> uh, but I think a, a lot of uh, the viewers of the podcast are in a similar position where they're probably mostly assisted men and maybe were interested in, in contributing to a project, but yes. again, they're, they're not going to create a, the new next new subsystem or, or application. Yeah. Uh, There's lots of stuff that needs to be done. Um, Immense amounts of housekeeping. Yes, and just maintenance, you know. Um, yeah. Um, developers are yeah. after the big flashy, sexy thing yeah. of building the yeah. next big thing, not keeping the existing stuff working. Um, well, there's um, uh, there's enough people who also do um, housekeeping, both in the code mm -hmm. and uh, around, but um, an extra pair of hands is always a good idea. Yes. Um, um, if you take uh, things like... Um, Oh, there's a typo in the man page. Mm -hmm. There's endless stuff. And better, uh, or, um, okay, I spent um, um, three hours understanding what the man page actually says. You could write that better. Yes. Uh, documentation is a, a good entrance uh, mm -hmm. drug. Yes, it's Because you have the problem it. that if you understand too much, you don't write good documentation anymore. Yes, because you, uh, once you know the system too well, you, you make too many assumptions and you and take skip too much too, many to parts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, uh, this, uh, the FreeBSD Foundation had an intern this summer writing tutorials, and they had never used FreeBSD before. And that's and that great. Yeah. Gave them, uh, you know, they could write a tutorial better than I could, even though I'm so experienced because they have the same point of view as someone who needs the tutorial. Yes. Whereas my view is, uh, when I look at it, I see a lot more, and I see, yeah. it's almost as if stuff was transparent and I can see through it and what's happening underneath, yeah. and a, a, a person approaching it fresh doesn't. Yeah. And it, it just changes yeah. everything. Um, the other thing is, um, uh, well, as an experienced system, I mean, uh, you probably will already, uh, may already know too much. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but you also will know um, um, pain points, mm -hmm. what itches, yes. what needs to be scratched. Yeah, um, because that's what I found and very valuable at a conference like this, is getting sysadmins and developers together. Because developers often are writing these tools and they're like, well, I think this is what a sysadmin would want as the output or you know, the, which, yeah. which bits of information they'll need. And the system is like, well, actually, what I need is this other stuff that you've buried or forgot to include or, yeah. or truncated or, or whatever. Mm. Yeah. 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 Also, um, uh, obviously, um, different environments have different needs. And um, yeah, the greater your span of um, participants, yeah. um, um, uh, the wider the reach of um, what you produce. Yes. Um, 
one of the things I'm doing uh, quite a lot of things for um, uh, NetBSD is um, that my um, uh, one of my main machines is an Amiga, mm -hmm. and uh, supporting the Amiga architecture obviously is um, uh, putting uh, a strain on the resources. Not a, not a big one usually, only mm -hmm. when they update the compiler. <laughs> Mm -hmm. and toolchain, but um, it does put a, uh, on a strain. I'm not good at uh, building compilers. I'm a good sysadmin. Uh, I'm basically freeing up other people by uh, supplying the work I'm good at mm -hmm. so that they can um, do the stuff they are good at and that I want. That, that you consume, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think there's uh, a lot more of that than, than people realize is that it's, it's about... Uh, doing what you can in this place so that somebody else can have yeah. to do the part that you want but can't do yourself. Yeah. And it, it's very, yeah. I mean, you know, it is uh, communal. If I wanted to, um, uh, to actually uh, support um, the Amiga, um, I wouldn't be doing anything else. And yeah. it's more efficient for the, pro um, uh, for the project if I do the things that I do well, mm -hmm. that I already do well. Right, because you don't have to you can do them at a much greater pace than someone else. Yeah. Can. And in their turn, they can, they're yeah. more familiar with compilers where you yeah. have to spend a lot I of mean, time learning and, and fighting. Yeah. Um, where I'm, um, um, one of the things is um, I get stuff to break that um, works for everybody else. Mm -hmm. That is a special And skill. I have things working perfectly for me but everybody says, oh, this is so hard and it's not working reliably. And mm -hmm. so. Yes, it's fine for me. Yeah. And part of that's just use case or experience and, and yeah. sometimes um, that can sometimes be solved it's, it's, it's simply automatic assumptions what not to do. Mm -hmm. Yes, sometimes it's just by understanding how to use it, you understand that, well, that was never going to work. Why did you think that would work? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, very interesting to try to consolidate those things and, and your view versus theirs and try to yeah. think like they're going to think. Yeah, but um, also uh, more people with um, um, uh, um, uh, more difference in background. Yes, uh, more give varied you... people and people with different experiences. Or, yeah. you know, specifically getting more people that aren't the classically trained developer into these yes. projects actually makes the progress that much stronger. Yeah. Uh, because they can provide that insight and a view and just the different way of thinking. Yeah. You know, and that's why I think it's very interesting when you get people in the project that say aren't trained in computer science but in astrophysics or something that <laughs> is uh, provides a very different view of the Yeah, well, um, uh, there are a surprising number of uh, physicists around. Yes. <laughs> Um, I think it uh, uh, in part because of the training, because um, um, uh, if you can get at the source, uh, you can look at the source and um, uh, see what is supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. um, if you can't, and um, uh, there's still enough uh, closed source that needs tending around, um, uh, having the physicist uh, mindset of, I have a hypothesis what should work, I try it, it works, great. It doesn't work, okay, 
uh, let's modify the hypothesis, try again. Mm-hmm. Um, and not give a, a think I know how it's supposed to work, try it, oh, it doesn't work, I'm playing that now. Right. Um, this try again, try again, try again, eventually gives you a result. Yes. Um, one of the things that make a good sysadmin is um, uh, to know what changes, what, what experiments you can make that you can recover from. Yes. And also just, you know, the iterative step of making one change at a time. So yes. when eventually when it does work, you know which change it was that made it work. Yeah. Uh, that that's yeah. very important too. But I think the other point you bring up is is uh, especially in science, in in the end, it's much better if the tools and, and the and the things that you use, software you use is open source because then it, it's part of the science is you want other people to be able to recreate it. Uh, and, absolutely. And uh, you that's want to one. be able to kind of. Uh, prove the process that proved your your theory, and if it's a black box, it's uh, it's even worse. You don't want to just have one result, uh, right. especially if you do um, uh, methodology. Mm-hmm. You want to develop the field. Mm-hmm. If you can't um, give your tools to somebody else, you can't. Right. So um, and if you can't modify the tools to make them better, then yeah. you're not advancing the science. Yeah. So um, uh, since most of the um, uh, people at our institute who are actually doing science uh, are doing uh, mythology, um, um, they actually um, are very huge on um, diverse uh, geoscience um, tools. I haven't looked into them. I'm still uh, too um, stuck up in uh, the other regions that need mm-hmm. doing. Maybe that um, over time I'll uh, develop an interest in that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably not soon. We also have a team um, which are dedicated developers mm-hmm. uh, who look after that. So it would be a side interest. Might um, uh, uh, find me packaging some tools if I ever manage to introduce package source to mm-hmm. my job. Um, but that's um, for the future. Um, baby steps. But yeah, that, that was another important thing is a, a lot of scientists want to use a set of tools and, and use them. And uh, it's very important that those be provided as reliable packages yeah. so that they can choose to use a platform like NetBSD or ABSD rather than just, you know, scientific Linux or whatever because, you know, when they get the this R package for doing the math. One of the, um, uh, one of the advantages of using package source in this case would be that it um, uh, also runs on yes. other um, so you you are not dependent on um, the US and um, um, yeah we we have a sizable uh, amount of Solaris for example exactly and and you can use package source yeah. on Solaris and the derivatives like Illumos yeah yeah so I think package source is definitely uh, an especially useful place to put that kind of those yeah. science packages yeah All right. was there anything else you wanted to talk about if you don't have any questions. Uh, I guess you, you had mentioned uh, in Bulgaria that you have a setup with a telescope connected to a webcam. Does that use BSD at all? Um, uh, no, I don't have. Um, uh, well, um, 
I, uh, well, okay, I have a, a very small telescope that is, um, uh, that doesn't have uh, an automatic mount, mm. and um, 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 I have um, an ordinary webcam, and I put the, uh, the webcam to the telescope, um, and I can um, shoot pictures with that. Mm-hmm. Um, simply by using uh, bacterial spheres from um, USB, but I didn't have to do anything special for that. Right. It was mostly just working. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, since the, my telescope doesn't have an uh, active mount, and doesn't um, uh, track the stars, mm-hmm. I would have to do that manually. Um, doing any processing with that is not really practical. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that um, the area I'm living in um, has too much light pollution. Yeah. So observations. If I got to have a vacation um, that was um, uh, in a dark place, I could um, consider packing it and then doing some uh, software processing of the uh, images, doing um, fast snapshots and then shift and edit and things like that. I admit it. I'm a Linux user. I know it's a little weird that I'm sitting here with you, but trust me, I want to be friendly and I want to know more about the state of graphics in BSD. We're going to get to that in just a moment. First, I want to talk you talk to you about my favorite hardware server vendor ever. Ever. And I've worked for many years, 13 years in the IT industry where I was ordering hardware from all the different major vendors that made x86 systems. Actually, I started I started with Spark Systems. <laughs> that was when I'm at the very beginning and then transitioned into ordering x86 systems. And it was just disaster after disaster. When IX Systems came around and when I finally discovered them, I knew immediately they'd be a perfect match for the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. And I never dreamed we'd have a show like BSD Now at the time. They'd be... They're such an ideal sponsor. They're the, they were really the folks behind Meet BSD. And so many of – I don't need to tell you guys this. I don't need to tell you. you guys. You guys know this. You know that they're creators of unbelievable systems from the FreeNAS Mini all the way up to huge enterprise systems powered by those great Intel processors. You know to go to IX Systems, right? Go to IX Systems right now and check it out. IXSystems.com slash BSD now. Go there. Learn more about IX Systems. And dig around on their blog, too. They have a great post about FreeNAS 10, which I got to see in action at Meet BSD with uh, a ton of disks. I think Jordan was messing around with 20 or 30 disks. I'm not. It was a lot. Uh, he had VPNed into a system, but he had back at the IX office that he used for R&D. And it was super cool to see all of that. And you can see some of that in action on their blog. ixsystems.com slash BSD now. Go there, learn more. And you can download their white paper if you need to grease the wheels up the chain at your business. And trust me, it is worth it. They had a great outfit put that together. ixsystems.com slash BSD now. And a big thank you to ixsystems for sponsoring the BSD now program and all of the hard work you guys do. Now, let's move into episode 143, which shifted around in time and talk about the state of FreeBSD graphics. Okay, we're joined today by uh, Matt Macy, who's a random hacker of kernel bits, as he described it a moment ago, which is a great title. I I should have thought of that first. But anyway, he's here to tell us a little bit about the graphics stack update that's just uh, been announced for FreeBSD. So first of all, welcome to the show today. We really appreciate you taking the time to be on here. Yes, thank you. Thanks. So uh, first of all, we need you to tell us a little bit about yourself, since this is the first time on the show. We always ask everyone to tell us their BSD journey, what kind of got them into BSD in the first place, and you know, where they first got involved. So let us know. How'd that, how'd that happen with you? 
So we used FreeBSD in my operating systems class at Berkeley. Brian uh -huh. Harvey was teaching that semester, and uh, that was pretty cool. Doing something that wasn't the toy operating system like Nachos, which is what they normally used. What uh, version of BSD was that back? If you don't, if you remember, two point one point one six. I want to say. Okay. So. Wow. It's been a little while. Um, and, um, yeah, it was a different time because, like, the disparity toward in between being, I mean, apart from the fact that Linux had multiple distros, which Walnut Creek frowned upon, which kind of, anyway, led to many of the, the this disparity, may have, may have resulted in led to the disparity that we see today. Mm -hmm. I mean, that there was really difference between, in many respects, there was, you know, there was a completely different world in terms of the dynamic between FreeBSD and Linux back then, so. Sure. Um, but, and then, I used it off and on over the years. Using 3 was actually kind of a serious headache. The ELF, ELF transition was, uh, was worse in many ways than the problems, the SMP transition in 5, because a lot of apps simply, you just couldn't get them to build. I mean, everything was configuring for a dot out, and you uh, try to build them for Elf, and they just didn't work. So I kind of, kind of slowed down my BSD usage, and then I came back to it later, more with four, and then I dabbled in it some more. What kind of got me more directly involved was when I did the initial uh, i386 port to Zen of FreeBSD, and. Uh, uh, drawing a blank on his name, uh, the person who was the Spark 64 developer um, basically offered me a commit bit, and uh, so then I sort of got a little bit more involved from there once that happened, and uh, got kind of tired of, of Zen, but ended up doing a bunch of other things as well, so... Um, and I uh, got into networking some more when I um, did the uh, ported the Chelsea driver to the initial Chelsea 10 gigabit driver to FreeBSD. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you kind of already started, but uh, what other kind of things uh, in FreeBSD can we blame you for? Uh, a lot of random things I did. Actually, it was. I mean, I consider it was really just FreeBSD 4, but it happened to be un under the auspices of Dragonfly. I did the uh, uh, process checkpointing facility, you know, and then, um, you know, just random performance work, lock push down in VM. So, finer grain page locking. I took um, some initial work that Jeff did and got it to the point where I could actually. Where companies were actually using it, and then eventually Alan actually got that in, and then various work to make to bypass um, repeated locking and lookups in the uh, packet path, and so changing um, just layer two and layer three to give better performance. Um, and things surrounding support for multi-queue Ethernet drivers. Um, I sent you. I sent you a list. Of, yeah. I, mean, I don't have to. 
that you might actually refer to. Yeah. Probably more more complete than anything that comes to me at the top of my head. Well, I see some uh, ZFS stuff on here. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Yeah, I I got it. I bought a um, OCZ SS. SSD, yeah. in quotes, because they're so low-end, they're basically just a camera flash packaged with a SATA interface, mm-hmm. and they're basically unusable with UFS uh, as a hard drive, but actually with ZFS, doing far fewer uh, random writes, um, I actually it was actually quite usable. Mm-hmm. And because of the right allocate nature of ZFS, I mean, it's a much better match to at least bottom of the line flash. I mean, may not may not may not make as big a difference for UFS versus ZFS with um, newer, better quality flash, but for low end flash, where so where the reallocation of erasure blocks kind of dictates the rate at which you can write. ZFS is a clear win. And so anyway, that was why I got interested in ZFS and also had a client using it. So it did some lock push down in the arc and dealing with contention there. Fixed some contention and prefetch. I mean, the, hmm. uh, that the Solaris developers just didn't want to acknowledge existed. It was a very odd interaction there. And... And but prefetch has never really worked right anyway. Um, if you have, I mean, that was kind of a hack that they they never really refined into something usable. And the big thing with it wasn't, you know, it's kind of seems mundane, but it's to actually make core dumps usable under ZFS because with ZFS, the arc will wire in huge amounts of memory. So the big thing that mini dumps introduced is that they would only dump. When initially core dumps would dump all of them, mm-hmm. all of them, and then Wham uh, changed it to mini dumps, which is just dumping wired memory, which is the kernel memory. But wired memory gets really, really, really large when you're wiring all of your buffer cache and mm-hmm. in the form of the arc, and so that basically meant that it was often impossible to get core dumps out of ZFS, and so I added. A new feature to just exclude um, pages that have been marked as no dump, and uh, at least for a while it made core dumps usable again. It seems like the metadata in ARC may be sufficiently large now that it's still exceeding many people's swap partitions. But anyway, it just just uh, it's a pretty uninteresting feature, but it's pretty important for doing. Uh, Mm-hmm. to be able to get cores out. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one I've heard quite a bit about recently is uh, IFLib. Oh, yeah. So the, the idea behind IFLib is that there's an immense amount of bad copy-paste between um, drive, network drivers, um, even at the highest levels. I mean, about the only, only really... And sort of leads to, I mean, previous decommitters will come in and do performance optimization and then the company's uh, in-house software staff will go and remove them the next time they get an update from Linux and 
do the sort of copy paste, mm -hmm. and there's the standard copy paste maintenance, and uh, so that kind of gives it makes performance um, less than we'd hoped for, and uh, so iFlip basically abstracts out all the device independent um, driver common driver code, allocating queues, you know, scheduling. Doing TX cleaning, um, this just the standard taking taking packets and passing them up the stack. Um, sure. And, and the driver is only responsible for programming registers or talking to firmware and um, translating um, a descriptor list into something that matches what the transmit ring or the can understand. And so far, and on the receive side, all it does is you know notify is when it, you're refilling the ring, you have a bunch of physical addresses, and it in basically tells the ring where these new buffers are. And then on the receive side, and then when actually packets arrive, it tells it just fills out a small descriptor that tells you know which ring the packet is on because. You know, some drivers have multiple receive rings, which driver the, the buffers are on, and how big each of them are. And it's basically, it's a, it's not a, not necessarily a trivial change to adapt a driver to use IFLib, but um, it basically, it, it takes all the sort of performance uh, burden off of the, the vendor. Well, that's cool. <laughs> and so um, I'm seeing we see much better performance, for example, and Netflix actually sees much better performance and uh, much better worst case CPU usage on the Intel's 40 gigabit with IFLib than with their legacy driver, for example. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Well, hey, well, the thing we want to talk to you a lot about today was, of course, the hot item on everyone's wish list for those of us who've been in FreeBSD land for a while has been graphics drivers. And, of course, uh, Haswell support finally landed in current, but, heck, you can't even buy a brand new Haswell laptop anymore. That's how out of date it is. So, Adam, don't say that. Well, you know, <laughs> you can't go down to your local big box store and be like, I'm going to grab a laptop. <laughs> Usually end up having my, my operating system doesn't have doesn't support anything newer than three and a half years old. Can you uh, help me out here? Yeah, right. <laughs> but it, it didn't yeah, look like kind of, that's kind of why I wanted to do the driver work. Sure. Because I'm, I was at the NVIDIA GTC conference and I felt like I had to kind of apologize for previous views. Like you know, yeah, it doesn't do this, it doesn't do that, but you know, it really works well for some things. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And I find myself running Ubuntu because, um, well, big thing is I want to run CUDA, and there's that's no fixing that unless someone, unless you know, you just unless Nvidia just decides to be, you know, less, you know, a little bit more um, benign. You know, there's they're just not going to flip the bit and enable CUDA support on FreeBSD. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's. What led, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. That's okay. kind of actually what led me to do the DRM stuff. But um, yeah, so so what exactly was besides just going to the video conference? What was the reason for you saying, you know, I'm going to fix this? Well, it wasn't it wasn't actually so much about fixing it as um, um, is well, there's there's two factors. The first one was I just I discovered that um, that 
AMD is I mean has a slowly maturing alternative to CUDA called Radeon Open Compute. Open Compute, and um, that they actually have sort of a, a compiler, you know, based on LLVM that mm -hmm. will compile to their processors, their GPUs. But it also, um, it can basically just transform it and pass it to NVCC, so you can actually compile it as CUDA as well. So once you port it to their stuff, you aren't tied to a specific vendor. I mean, with mm -hmm. CUDA, you're basically locked into NVIDIA, and you know their marketing is such that they've convinced you that they're the only one that matters anyway. Um, but you know, at least now you have a, a sort of a cross-platform alternative. Um, and they actually do have pretty good compute numbers, um, so it, it's it's a nice it's it's a promising alternative. I mean, and so I saw that, and I thought, gee, well, that kind of addresses my issue. I mean, I I can do GP GPU stuff. See, I I guess what what got me into the GPU stuff is I have an interest in developed an interest in machine learning recently. And a lot of that um, really only scales to large data sets when run on a GPU. I mean, giving things like deep neural networks and um, various other algorithms scale and run about 10 to 20 times faster on GPUs than sure. on, on even like a 16 core um, Intel, you know, nights, you know, even the top of line Intel many core processor can't. Can't really compete with. I mean, maybe within a factor eight of a GPU that costs, you know, a fifth as much. So, sure. um, so for for doing large scale data parallel compute, there's you really can't compete with um, GPUs. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what, and that's important for machine learning. And so that's kind of what got me into CUDA. But CUDA is basically Linux only. And so I became into discover the Radeon Open Compute, and that looked like that was promising, and they actually converged with Mainline uh, in the not so distant future. Sure. And so I was like, gee, okay, but that requires porting the KFD driver, which in turn requires AMD GPU, mm -hmm. and requires a much, much, much newer DRM. And I was like, oh my God, this is. Okay, so that's that's the question of like, okay, so how do we get into updating DRM was kind of what the real first step, first question was. Mm -hmm. And initially just updated the 3.9 with some, a lot of convergence with upstream and some re, some Linuxification of the driver. And that was kind of our first step in vetting the Linux KPI as being a sort of valid alternative to localizing the driver, and then we then it jumped to 4.6, and went whole hog trying to um, basically make the driver as close to upstream as possible. You know, no no local changes, and sure. so the and the reason I started with i915 is um, is because the i915 driver is newer and better supported than Radeon. So it basically makes sense when you're introducing a lot of perturbation, you start with something that works and it's the, start with the newest thing you can, you've got. Mm -hmm. And uh, since then, I've gotten sort of more 
um, engaged more um, with with i nine fifteen because I mean they've got seventy percent of the GPU market. I mean, sure. And so there's no way of um, getting around the fact that that's going to be the GPU that most users and developers are going to have on their desktops or in their laptops. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and, um, and it's sort of kind of just like with the GPU, GPU stuff, I think if the graphic stuff is a sort of a small but important step towards um, getting everyone back to dog food. And I think, sure. I mean, I think, I mean, there are a lot of people, there's a certain amount of masochism required to dog food right now. Um, and uh, I think it needs to get back to the point where I can, Ubuntu, I can use FreeBSD as a complete drop-in for um, Ubuntu on my desktop. I mean, mm -hmm. and I mean, there's no way FreeBSD can, well, it'd be very hard for FreeBSD, I mean, PCBSD to catch up with the polish um, the, you know, having Mark Shuttleworth, you know, sure. hundreds of millions of dollars into it. I mean, there's just, yeah, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, oh, I hope you win the lottery or something. But then when you win the lottery, you decide maybe you've got better things to do with your money. <laughs> um, and, um, but there's no reason why it can't be on par with respect to sort of common case device support, particularly if you have, um, Linux developers doing the work for you. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, so the idea with this is, is not just about graphics, it's basically any devices that are better supported under Linux, you know, whether or not they be like the Synaptics touchpad or the Broadcom full Mac driver, um, any of those will be ultimately be potential targets for quote unquote porting with the Linux KPI. And basically just track the upstream Linux driver and just plug it into kernel the FreeBSD kernel by way of the um, Linux KPI because sort of device support is is sort of one of the big things that's sort of really hobbling FreeBSD usage and why you see so many MacBooks uh, at FreeBSD conferences is because you know device support is just just isn't isn't there. Sure. And so, I'm hoping that we can we can um, largely bridge the gap. And this is kind of a, a important first step. Mm -hmm. And it's being more of a headache than I kind of anticipated because every laptop is its own special snowflake. You can have two laptops with the exact same processor, and one works and one doesn't mm -hmm. uh, because of BIOS. You know how what, how much memory the BIOS allocates or how the values, you know, enables you to enumerate interrupts or whatnot, and it's it's a headache. So it's 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 kind of disconcerting, a little bit discouraging because I mean I kind of hope that it would be more like Ethernet drivers where you make it work and you pass packets and you basically you force out the edge conditions and eventually you have something that's fast and stable mm -hmm. and now here there's a lot of a lot more code. To cover in terms of with the Linux KPI, various holes are being discovered, et cetera, and just a various sort of lot more complexity with the graphics driver, with people seeing like a red lines at the top of the screen. And I don't know what's doing that. I don't really. I mean, basically, it requires. So far, I've managed to get 
a lot of mileage out of just focusing on filling in the Linux KPI enough to make things go, but then when things go wrong, the question is, how do you diagnose uh, what's going wrong? And that requires, sure. will probably require understanding the graphics driver a lot more than I currently do. But, they, uh, but oh, we'll see. So, I mean, it's a long term, and so I want to basically, I want my to get back to dog fooding FreeBSD on my desktop, which means that, you know, I can drive my large screen, you know, 4K at 60 hertz, you know, and, um, you know, you know, if Vulkan, so are you too familiar with Vulkan? No. Mm -mm. So there's a new, um, so AMD came out with a, a low-level graphics API called Mantle. Okay, I've heard of that. Yep. And it's uh, for games development. It basically moves a lot of the resource management and scheduling out of the driver and into the hands of the game developer, which uh, adds a lot of complexity, but it also basically frees their hands to make things work a lot better. And that's kind of what DX12 looks like, oddly enough, as well. Um, and AMD, quote-unquote, gave Mantle to the Chronos group. So they're the ones who handle OpenCL, OpenGL, various standards like that. And so now it's called Vulkan. Okay. And, and um, NVIDIA, and it's sort of been eagerly adopted because it by the graphics vendors because it kind of undercuts the um, Microsoft games monopoly. Because up until now, I mean, DirectX has been far beyond OpenGL mm -hmm. in terms of game support. And Vulkan will gives the, the possibility for to make SteamOS a reality and, you know, running games on Linux and just porting them from Windows to Linux becomes less painful and the results are better. And there are a number of companies that have actually committed or essentially committed to doing Vulkan ports. And so what you're going to do is you're going to have um, AAA titles that essentially just work, that are fairly straightforward for companies to port to Linux. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is, by extension, is that, you know, you don't need wine or whatnot, is we'll just have the Linux API and you can run AAA titles on FreeBSD. Which Ooh. I'm not a big gamer, but there's something very cool about being able to do that, mm -hmm. and it just seems, sure. just seems one, and it's just sort of one one step closer to making FreeBSD run. Uh, it, one one more thing in terms of making FreeBSD run as a conventional desktop. I mean, mm -hmm. being able to run VMware Workstation, Google Hangouts, you know, Widevine, which is the Netflix DRM, is you know, binary only, obviously, you're not going to have open source DRM, unfortunately. And um, so, you know, being able to have good Linux ABI support would be, is important to like be able to run Netflix. So that's another piece of, of getting back to dog fooding is just being able to run normal applications. And mm -hmm. so, so once, you know, when, if I get the graphics stuff, Stable. I'd like to move on to looking at the uh, Linux API, any Linux ABI disparities. And I don't think there isn't actually a lot that's changed. I think the big problem is that package management 
of uh, Linux uh, support ports is are almost is basically just too cumbersome right now. You know, you you, you talk you untar the Linux port, you know, or the Linux RPM, and then you make a port out of it, and then five days later it's out of date. And then you know, a month later, public mm -hmm. stop working because uh, of something that's changed in the meantime. And so, you know, managing hand-rolled ports uh, of the Linux support environment is is unmaintainable. As sure. Right. And so I think that's fairly simple to fix, I mean, at least conceptually, is you take apt and you teach it to to register packages with PKG's database and uh, you're good to go. I mean, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then and then you fill in any ABI holes that exist that have cropped up over the years. But I've actually gone through the release notes for every kernel since Linux kernel since 2.6.32, which was the CentOS 6 kernel. Mm -hmm. And there really aren't that many ABI changes that have occurred. I mean, it's actually, they've actually, I don't think their ABI has changed maybe even as much as FreeBSDs. I mean, so. Mm -hmm. They certainly added a bunch of flags to PR control and IOCTL and ptrace, and they've had you know random, random things that allow you to read for one process to read another process's memory, you know, which sound a lot like mock, but ad hoc mock additions. But um, it, you know, I don't think that getting up to the point where we can support you know Ubuntu 16. LTS is uh, Linux 4.4 is really all that much work. I think the bigger issue is just making sure that we can keep the packages up to date. Yeah, I think the only major syscall that's missing that a lot of people are, would like to have on FreeBSD is iNotify. Is what? iNotify, like oh, what oh, Dropbox yeah. uses? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's FA Notify. Yeah, there's FA Notify. Mm. That's yeah. the stuff that makes like Dropbox work and others. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody had a list somewhere of like the three or four that were needed to get Steam working, Steam for Linux working on FreeBSD. Pardon uh, me? Somebody had the list of what syscalls were missing to get the Steam for Linux client to run on FreeBSD. Oh, definitely send me that because yeah. I don't think that should be that. I mean, I basically I found like 12, 12 syscalls have been added in the last six years. And yeah, maybe one or two seem like they'd be relevant. I mean, mm. they're. They've added some stuff to sys. I mean, part of the ABI now is sysfs and procfs. So they've added some things there that may be relevant in terms of threads can query their state. Through. They've added various fields to procfs, but it's you know it's the kind of thing that you could do in a couple of weekends. I mean, it's really it's not sure. it's not a lot of functionality that, that, that we're missing as far as I can tell. So, but yeah, definitely send me email if you if you find that again. Definitely send me email with uh, with that list. Cool. So, right. so, so recover the DRM motivation. So what, what was required? Yeah. Uh, so, well, uh, what was required to bring it up to date? So. Yeah. In, so it's pretty clear by virtue of the fact that we've been lagging so badly on graphic support that um, creating some having a native graphics driver is is isn't simply isn't feasible, mm -hmm. um, you know. And um, I'm not that interested 
in graphics per se in its own right, and I have no interest in maintaining a graphics driver long term. Um, so really, I see the only way forward is being being as close to upstream as possible. Sure. Um, because you know, if, if when I you know pass pass it off to to Jean, I know it needs to be require as little incremental kernel work as possible. And the only way to do that is to basically make it make it look like upstream. And so that's why I went the Linux KPI route, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, it just ended up being filling out a lot of holes in the Linux KPI. And the interesting thing is very few of the Linux KPI additions were changes between 3.9 and 4.6, I mean, the 3.8 and 4.6. I mean, all these things existed in 3.8. It's just that we, um, you know, had localized the drivers, so we didn't didn't have them in Linux KPI. So the, the actual KPI usage of the driver has not changed that much since 3.8. Hmm. So basically... So what will determine the long-term maintenance burden of tracking upstream will be the rate at which it expands its usage of kernel programming interfaces, not the rate of churn in the driver itself. So if the driver, you know, if the driver is completely rewritten from top to bottom, all 128,000 lines and every line changes, if the set of Linux KPI calls that it uses remain unchanged. There's no additional work for us. That's awesome. I mean, there may be there may be you know an hour or two of reintegrating the handful of local changes. I mean, I have the the i915 driver in 4.6 is 128,000 lines. You give it by comparison the one in 3.8 is 62,000 lines, so it's more than doubled in size. Um, and I have a my diff, a local diff is 450 lines. Hmm. Okay. So I mean, yeah. it, it's not zero, but it's 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 pretty modest considering the size of the driver. It's at least a manageable amount. I mean, it's something you can look at, you know, on a couple couple pages of text. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and so and maybe maybe able to manage that down further over time. Um, part of that's just AGP um, making AGP stuff compile, and I think eventually I'll have to replace um, FreeBSD's AGP code um, so that I can support pre-Sandy Bridge laptops. Hmm. Right now, the driver won't load on Arendelle which is the chip model pre-Sandy, prior to Sandy Bridge, because of holes in AGP. Uh, it was simply too hard to, at a first cut, to um, to update that because it's been so heavily localized and doesn't sort of mesh cleanly with what's upstream. And so there's just sort of stubs there right now. And uh, my, my take was that AGP is dead, but... Um, sure. But there's some indication that Adam might use it, um, which is an internal boss on the system on a chip. I'm not not actually sure. And uh, there's also just the support for, I mean, I, for uh, Arendelle. 
times now, uh, and prior. I mean, I'm generally, I'm actually pretty dogmatic about not supporting anything more than 10 years old. I mean, and my feeling is that, you know, if you want to support anything, you want to support really old hardware, there's always, you can always just stick to an older release or you sure. can uh, use NetBSD or OpenBSD. I love talking to you with open arms. And, <laughs> but the flip side of that is, is you know, Arendelle's not that old. It's five years old, and, and I think you know that does anything that it does fall within that ten-year window needs to be supported. So you know, I'm not really enthused about that. I have the same feeling about Atoms. Uh, is that they're such rubbish processors that you know, kind of, and I think they may be getting killed with Intel's recent changes uh, to their embedded. I mean, since they've essentially, their process shrank essentially failed. Um, I mean, they're, and they're pulling back on a lot of things, but the fact is that it's out there and some people have it. And the whole, the whole my whole agenda with dog fooding is that FreeBSD should just work on mm. any arbitrary laptop. And I can't sort of say any arbitrary laptop, but. Except that. Yeah. It's, yeah. That's not dickish. That's not that goes beyond being a dick. That's to the point where you're just being hypocritical. Which so um, anyway. Um, All right. So let's see what else. Well, I guess there. Alan's got the next question here. Okay, what's your? Well, uh, we just we're wondering about the the binary blobs that the Linux is starting to introduce for the graphics, where I guess it's like firmware that gets loaded into the GPU or something. Yeah, so I've actually added make files for the firmware, and right now I haven't specified the Voodoo for them correctly, so they're not actually getting found uh, by by the driver, but they're actually there, and they are they can be loaded. And so, okay. you know, we have Ethernet, all anything 10 gig and above, Ethernet drivers all have firmware, and basically any non-trivial piece of firm car hardware has firmware now. And, you know, even if you had the C, had it as C code, um, you, you probably wouldn't know what, know what to do with it. Um, so I don't, don't really have any problems with firmware per se, I mean, no. except when it's buggy, which it often is. Right. Um, but well, I, I wasn't sure if we'd actually be able to just load that same firmware, or if the, we'd have to fir the firmware, yes. So there, there is an open question about i nine sixty five support going into Gen ten. Intel is going to create binary blobs for for some things. Mm -hmm. is, my, is what I've been told. It's kind of come through a little bird. Uh, however, the same little bird also said is also pressuring Intel through uh, the consumer side uh, to um, actually support FreeBSD. So there's there's a good chance that that Intel, or is, there's a reasonable chance that Intel will actually compile the binary blobs for FreeBSD. Great. I mean, if the ABI usage of the binary blobs were small enough, it would be possible to emulate that, but emulating an ABI just, um, it's not like syscalls where there's a fixed, you know, protocol. I mean, a kernel KBI is something that varies from, you know, dot release to dot release, and uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that 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 just seems nightmarish. I mean, ultimately, I want to settle 
on a kernel on whatever latest long-term support uh, release goes for for the uh, user space ABI and and KBI, but you I mean like, but uh, I still I don't know, if, you know, supporting supporting Linux at the ABI level in, inside the kernel seems like more work than than one can really manage. Um, so, but yeah, so now uh, I I think we're covered. I mean, the firmware is part of the build; it gets installed. I just need to fix the fix the the, the make file voodoo. And we'll have the power management. Um, there are no sort of um, OS level binary blobs yet, uh, but you know we're going to try and have uh, Intel recompile them for FreeBSD because uh, you know there's sort of a general feeling that you know they they claim to support FreeBSD and you know. FreeBSD is, you know, not granted it's nothing compared to Linux, but it's still probably, you know, tens of millions of dollars in terms of like network hardware devices and motherboards for FreeBSD. And if they refuse to support with their monopoly position in graphics, if they refuse to support FreeBSD, they're effectively undercutting FreeBSD in the FreeBSD community. So, I mean, if if they can, if they if they can with relatively little effort. Um, you know, facilitate the health of the FreeBSD community by allowing them to use Intel hardware for their own personal work and whatnot. Um, it, it, it seems like the, the right thing to do. And it seems to make sense from a business standpoint to pressure them to do that. Cool. Okay. Uh, hey, so, Chris, before we get to the next question, yeah. i got to fix the audio. A little bit. There. I should fix it. A little better now? Yep. Go ahead. Okay. There we go. So um, you put out a call for testing, asking people to help you try out the new drivers. Um, how can people do that, and what kind of problem reports are you looking for? Uh, what information do you want back from uh, users? Um, so right now, I mean, it's mainly just an issue of stability. I've got three panics uh, right now that people have reported. And they look all fairly straightforward to fix, but I'm sure there are others. Sure. Uh, so, in terms of testing, you mean if you're if you're running dash current, it's not that hard to um, create. You know, it's pretty trivial to um, just compile. You know, check out the DRM next four six branch, and just compile a kernel and you know boot into that. See if it works, and then boot back into your normal environment. If you're not running dash current, um, I've created a, a bootable image that you know is a full-blown environment of sorts that has XFCE and KDE installed, and you can, and it defaults to using uh, uh, what's called SNA. There's so on Intel there are two modes of acceleration for Intel. There's UXA. Sorry, I repeated myself. And SNA, SNA being the newer, more performant one. Mm -hmm. um, for some people, UXA works better. And um, it defaults. I have an image that uses SNA by default, and um, people can then switch back to UXA to test it. But kind of jump getting ahead is the basic idea is that they download the USB image, uncompress it, giddy it to a 
USB stick, assuming they have, they, you know, they do, they don't just shop at garage sales, or they've gone to the local drugstore lately, and they have one that's big enough, um, they can just DD it and um, and boot into it, and they're good to go. So basically, even a dash, even a stable user, someone who's, or even someone who doesn't even use FreeBSD, don't, well, okay, I take that back, FreeBSD. Mm-hmm. It's, it would be a little bit cumbersome for a non-FreeBSD user, but you, this allows you to boot it on even a hardware that you don't FreeBSD, run FreeBSD on. You basically mm-hmm. unload the image and you create a USB stick with it. You can just plug it into any hardware that you can boot off of USB. You can go and, and test uh, you know, FreeBSD's graphics support on that particular hardware. You know, just plug it in, boot it. You know, start X or start KDE, and you know, see what blows up. <laughs> and see if it blows up, or if it if it doesn't blow up, starts up. You see artifacts, or you know, basically a red line, or fonts don't run right. You know, it's all useful, and you know, basically all those things. I mean, right now it's just you know, make it not blow up. But I mean, all the any any sort of issues. I mean, you start out. Just load the driver. If that crashes, okay. Well, that's good to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you know, start X and that crashes. Well, that's good to know. Okay, uh, X runs, but you know, um, their things don't draw right, or it locks up, or whatnot. At some point, but basically, run your normal workload. Run heavy duty 3D apps that if you can. You know, Stellarium or WebGL tests or whatnot. But just just general as much coverage as you have time for in terms of testing and uh, well, the good news is don't tell me what goes wrong. I mean, that's I don't. It's not. There's not really a good test matrix like you might have for networking. Right. Um, Sure. And uh, but uh, and I mean, I really need to to write up a little bit more about bug reporting. But at this point, it's just kind of like tell me what doesn't work and uh, I've only gotten a handful of reports most of which have been negative which is odd since on my hardware it works okay but I, I, I mean I assume that people are more like are less likely less inclined to report successes I mean, which is fine I mean um, but um, well hopefully we're going to get you a lot more yes. responses here soon I plan on pulling it into a PCBSD's image for uh, we do a monthly current and we're going to start rolling that this weekend. So uh, we're going to pull in your changes and push it out with the June image in time well, for BSD can. Like let's say it doesn't support pre-Sandy Bridge, so make sure that you have some mechanism for coping. Sure. Uh, having a boot environment or something so that you can mm-hmm. switch between the two because okay. it does have Broadwell support. It does have Skylight support. I mean, a lot of people are using Broadwell to good effect. Um, I've heard a lot of people with visual artifacts on Skylake, so that's kind of disconcerting. Um, But that's more, um, but, you know, but, uh, and also there's the issue with Adam, so, yeah, just, just give, give, give give people a a backdoor for, um, for hardware that's not really supported right now. Are all these changes you made just in the kernel by any chance, or is there any world changes as well? There's nothing in user land. There's no user okay. land changes. I mean, right now, ultimately, I think we probably need to be running the latest um, XF86 Intel 
man, it's a, it's a library. For some reason, the X developers call it a driver, but it, it's not a driver. Um, uh, it's, it's like, uh, um, well, that was another question I had anyway. So what, what so libraries do you have to pull in from ports? Ultimately, I think we want to be running the newer X um, from the development branch of ports. But the reports I've got, I haven't had a chance to test that yet. And the reports I've gotten so far said that the current one in ports actually works better, oddly enough. Okay. So, so the stuff from my understanding is that the stuff that's in ports right now actually works best, um, which is a problem in and of it. So, and, but, but the gist of it is that you, you shouldn't really need to be doing, unless you have a skylight that's much newer than, than what import, the thing that imports knows about. So the problem is that some of the skylights have PCI IDs that are actually newer than ports recognizes. So there are actually some changes just in terms of just recognizing the hardware on the user space side. I mean, but that's a fairly trivial patch. It's just adding, you know, a half dozen PCI IDs to the libdrm or whatever it is that um, does the probing on the user space side to match up the PCI IDs. But other than that, in long term we're going to probably want to update to the newest version of X and the newest version of the, the user space Intel support side. But right now there, there aren't any unless you have a, a really late model skylight. There are there's nothing that needs to be done in users. Cool. That's yeah. good enough. Uh, so, so, uh, so, um, but that that does bring us back to the sort of ports issue. Is it? I mean, I have a oh, I have about three small changes that I want to push into the current. Um, past that, um, just because of the amount of churn. I mean, I think the uh, the plan going forward is to maintain uh, a Linux KPI or at least my extension, recent extensions to it, and DRM and the drivers as ports, uh, and that sort of fixes that avoids the sort of issue with backwards compatibility for now, mm-hmm. and it also allows me to. Um, fix things independent of FreeBSD releases. So basically people can receive updates to it without tracking dash stable or dash current. I mean, basically you just, every every time you update your ports, you'll get uh, the latest bug fixes to DRM, and, uh, to Linux KPI and the drivers and whatnot. So, oh, okay. So that, cool. that helps us avoid the issue of the window for commits to FreeBSD 11 closes. Very soon. Yeah, well, I actually, yeah, I, need, I actually do have changes that I need to get in, um, and I think you know, I think everyone wants those commits made. So yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. We, we can have graphic support without having to. I mean, well, I mean, the alternative would just be that everyone who wants you know modern graphics on FreeBSD just runs PCBSD because right. they'll just have my patches. <laughs> we that would be an option too, and you know. FreeBSD people, if you're going to make us do that, I mean, we'll gladly take the extra users. <laughs> but I definitely like the idea of, of having as much of it as possible be a port that can be updated, you know, independently. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, apart from the, I mean, the, um, the lack of having a commit bit. The, I mean, I think the bigger issue is I don't, 
really want to maintain it in tree because of the back uh, because graphics just moves much faster mm -hmm. um, than FreeBSD does or should, and having to rebuild your kernel on a weekly basis as you know updates roll in. Particularly right now, since you know, everything is in flux and we haven't really stabilized it, I mean, I think maybe by 11.1 or 11.2, the Linux KPI should have stabilized and we'll have support. There will be no loss of legacy support. Then it may actually be able to, it'll probably make sense to fold everything back into, into the tree. Um, but so long as things are in flux and I'm actively fixing bugs, it, it, it it's not really in anyone's interest to try and, and maintain, push the drivers into tree. Okay. Sounds good. So I guess the next question here is, so updating the uh, Linux KPI, does that have any impact on the Linux compat layer, such as being able to run more modern Linux binaries? Does that uh, work uh, correspond to the AVI stuff? Not at all. Not at all? Okay. Uh, the, the, so this is purely something that drivers fit into the AVI stuff. It's possible that it provides some support functionality to the Linux ABI, but the Linux ABI, by and large, um, just, I mean, at least for functionality that FreeBSD has natively, Linux ABI just permutes the arguments in such a way that you know it can then go take them around and pass them to the FreeBSD equivalent functionality. Mm -hmm. And so there's very little in the way of um, um, there's very little in the way of, um, of, of work going on. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, I do think the Linux a a B filling in any gaps in the Linux ABI is important, as, and that's kind of part of my, my personal dog-fooding initiative, if you will. Is okay. that, uh, you know, I, like, I see supporting, I see Linux ABI support is critical to supporting um, you know, you're running on the desktop, whether or not that's you know. Well, you need to run you know the Linux version Netflix. of Chrome, so you get DRM and, and you know, Netflix stuff like or AAA games. You know, Ashes the Singularity when that comes out uh, for Linux, you can run that on FreeBSD. I mean, yada yada yada. So I mean, it, that's kind of just it's just all Apple, you know, motherhood and Apple Pie in terms of getting people to run on the desktop. Yep. Sure. Okay. Well, okay, Al, uh, Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Was there anything else you wanted to mention? Uh, no. I'm just looking forward to, I mean, basically, to, to, to the amount to talk about this because I'm trying to get as much uh, feedback uh, and testing as possible. Yeah, I think uh, we'll get quite a bit of more people interested uh with the podcast because you know because on the one hand I, I've got enough I mean I've got enough responses that you know that you know I'll probably have you know a day's worth of bug fixing when I get back to it again on Saturday or so but on the other hand I kind of given how much a big a deal people have made about graphic support kind of surprised um that you, how few responses I've gotten, given the fact that I've made it, you know, 
almost push button. Yeah, sure. Because I, I think that was a big deal, having that image that I can just plug into my laptop and not have to reformat it. Or, you know, I plugged it into the NUC that actually we use to do the interviews on this show, and I can't go reformatting that. But I could plug a USB stick in it, boot it off that, try it, and see if it works, give you the report, and then the system's not modified. Right. I mean, that, yeah. I mean, that's exactly the that's the, that's the exactly the idea. And it actually, I put a lot of I put a lot of effort into that, and particularly burned a couple days trying different permutations because of the G label bug that mm -hmm. you uh, need yes. to fix. Uh, yeah. And uh, but you know, I've been through many iterations with that, trying to get something that you know something that's moderately functional. And uh, you know, I, I, I'm kind of surprised that the you know people don't seem comfortable seem that comfortable with it. I mean, I don't know, don't don't entirely understand it. I mean, I think, I mean, maybe it's just developers feel like they have to build it themselves or something, and that you know, it's sure. I don't. Uh, I don't. don't well, if it helps, I just threw the link to your announcement that went to the X11 mailing list onto the show notes. So I'm sure we'll have a bunch of listeners who watch it later this week and okay. can now go grab your image and test it and hopefully give you some feedback. And I encourage all of our all of our listeners to do that if you're interested in graphics at all. On if BSD. you want yours to work, you well, have to test graphics. It. Just basically being able to, you know, run use something more, do anything something beyond just running with SCFB. I mean. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not interested in graphics, but I think it's sort of pretty important just to, if you're interested in, in modern, you're interested in running FreeBSD on any on any recent hardware. I think uh, I think uh, it's pretty important that uh, you do this just for the general sake of sure. FreeBSD help. Okay, well, thanks for your time, yes. guys. Are you hey. Thank you. Well, we appreciate it, and uh, look forward to seeing you again in the future. And of course, we'll uh, get some feedback for you here in the near future as well. OpenBSD 6.0 brought in some brand new security features, like dropping Linux compatibility. Uh, OpenBSD uh, 6.0 is just around the corner. It looks like it's currently slated for September 1st, and it brings with it a whole slew of exciting new features. And we kind of have the early preview of what the uh, tentative release notes look like here. Mm -hmm. So uh, first up, of course, let's get this right out of the way. A moment of silence, please, because VAC support has been dropped from 6.0. And the one person who still cared, you know, <laughs> has picked themselves up off the floor at this point, and life moves on. Mm -hmm. But, however, to make up for the devastating loss of VAX, they have added ARM v7 to the release. So, we do have a, a modern uh, yes. uh, new, new processor. With an EFI bootloader. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, not, not a big loss, in my opinion. But, anyway... Uh, aside from that, the tentative release notes are actually pretty complete, and Mark 6.0 is quite an exciting release. So I wanted to go through some of those with you here, Alan. Yep. I think there's quite a bit of stuff they've done. But, of course, uh, as related to the ARM v7, they've added the EFI bootloader. Uh, kernels are now loaded from uh, uh, a fast file system instead of FAT or uh, EXT without the U-boot header. So that's kind of nice. cool. Yeah, they have a single kernel and RAM disk now all used for the uh, SOCs. Uh, hardware is dynamically enumerated via the flattened device tree. So that's good. And then they have a mini root installer images that include U-Boot 2016.07 with support for EFI payloads. So good stuff. Lots of new hardware then, support I see here. Uh, yeah, we, I know. I was drooling over some of this. <laughs> uh, even just uh, GPIO controllers on all the new little Intel things like the Baytrail and Cherry View. 
uh, and lots of other little devices, including uh, SMP network stack improvements for the uh, transmit queues on the CN Mac driver as well, so you can get more networking, yep. use more of your CPUs for your networking. Well, hey, you, you bypassed, you can't not mention the IWM driver's gotten some more model support mm-hmm. too, so if you have wireless 3165 or 8260, which that's what I have in those new uh, X1 Carbons yep. coming, is the 8260. I gotta make sure, I don't know if that's been ported over yet to freebie. Uh, I know Sean Bruno imported a bunch of new firmware Okay. Like yesterday or Sunday. Oh, well, okay, good. Because my, my laptop hasn't showed up yet. It's about two weeks okay. out. So uh, hopefully just. It worked on uh, George Neville Neal's Sandy Bridge. Or sorry, not Sandy Bridge, oh. uh, Skylake. He's got sure. an X. Well, he's got right. an X260. So that's the same Perfect. newest gen. Okay. Right? Awesome. Okay, anyway, mm-hmm. keep on going. Oh, Lots of other stuff. Let's see. So the uh, wireless stack got some improvements. So the HT block ACK receive buffer logic now follows the algorithm given in the uh, 802.11.2012 specs a little more closely. The uh, IWN driver now keeps track of HT protection changes while associated with an NAP. Yes, the IWN is the slightly older for the uh, 6000-ish series of Intel wireless, like 6205 that I have in my uh, X220 and T530. Uh, That's right. Other interesting one here is the priority field in the VLAN headers is now correctly set on each fragment uh, of an IPv4 packet going out of a VLAN interface. Okay, mm-hmm. nice. I love installer improvements, dot, dot, dot. So to be continued, there'll probably be some changes yep. there before the uh, the release goes out. Um, let's see. They've added some routing table support, rc.d and rcctl. Uh, yep. And C got some improvements. Security improvements. They have uh, WXRX is now strictly enforced by default. A program can only violate it if the executable is marked with the special OpenBSD WX needed flag or is located on a file system which is mounted with the WX allowed mount option. Mm-hmm. Nice. Okay, they removed SysTrace, they removed something else we'll get to in a second yeah. after we uh, the notes here. Stuff we've covered previously, they have their uh, SROP mitigation with SIG return can only be used by kernel-provided signal trampolines, and there's a mm-hmm. cookie to protect it against uh, misuse or reuse. Nice. And then I guess the uh, other big thing we have in the news here is the removal of the Linux emulation support. Ah, oh, you spoiled it. That's what I was going to get okay. to next. <laughs> but yeah, we'll talk about that here in a mm-hmm. moment. Uh, what else here? Oh, tons of stuff. Like they got new versions yeah, of all their uh, other ports. Open uh, SMTPD, new version of OpenSSH, OpenNTPD, uh, the latest LibreSSL, etc. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff here. And then they, of course, list some of the outside stuff that's coming in. Looks like new versions of GCC, uh, Xenocara, which is, of course, their version of Xorg, uh, Bin Utils. There's a new version of Ah, okay. <laughs> Let's see, and then some highlights of some of the bigger stuff, like they have KDE, let's see, 3.5.10 and 4.14.3, and then, uh, you know, different Pythons, MUT, Node.js, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the release notes here, so definitely check it out, although they might change a little bit, because this is the preliminaries before uh, release September 1st. But uh, speaking of this, um, in other news related to this, uh, first of all, the pre-orders are up, so we should mention that. So if you want to go ahead and pre-purchase your CD, do that now. And second of all, uh, InfoWorld actually picked up on this. They picked up on the story about the pending removal of the Linux compat layer mm-hmm. from OpenBSD 6 well, and Rota. Yeah, it's cool about that. They removed it from head uh, a while ago, right? Like Yeah, I think it's interesting. Yeah. So they're, people are just starting to catch up to this. And then, of course, with the 6.0 release, this will be official. But uh, touting it as a security feature, of course, you'll soon be able to unable to run legacy Linux binaries on OpenBSD. So, of course, yeah, my opinion on that is it is both 
both positives and negatives depending well, on your use case. In, in particular, you yes, know. OpenBSD's uh, uh, reasoning for removing their Linux compat layer was security, but it's because their Linux compat layer hadn't been updated in a long time and so had all these problems. Whereas, sure. uh, well, not that I'm saying that the FreeBSD Linux compat layer doesn't have a bunch of problems that need to be fixed. Sure. Yeah, it probably does. Uh, but <laughs> we are emulating Linux after yeah, all. <laughs> you know, they didn't remove it because Linux is inherently bad or something. They removed it because there was no interest in OpenBSD in maintaining it. Uh, and so in that case, the OpenBSD policy is get rid of it because, you know, that way there's fewer yeah. attack vectors. Or the craft. Uh, so, right. you know, I think the uh, info world may be slightly skewing the story because of their lack of understanding. But I, I believe so. But uh, ironically, we're waiting for improved Linux compat support in FreeBSD because, mm-hmm. you know, from my perspective, I want to run some closed source stuff exactly. out there like Steep maybe or Skype or, you know, be able to watch Netflix, that kind of thing. Yeah. So um, we'll see what, what happens with that. And, uh, and uh, of course, it was interesting to see the InfoWorld picked up on that. But uh, we will keep an eye out because it looks like 6.0 is going to be a, a barn burner release. Mm-hmm. Lots of good new stuff in there. And uh, we'll bring you the final, I guess, uh, release notes once they uh, once they get closer to September 1st. Yep. That'll bring us to the end of the BSD Now program. Don't forget you can follow the show at BSD Now on Twitter. But really, just subscribe to the RSS feed and get it automatically when it comes out. And the guys do record it live. You can get it converted at your local time, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. There's also a contact page over there where you can send them in questions. And last but not least, you can also subscribe on YouTube to the Jupiter Broadcasting channel and catch the show that way. I hope you have a great holiday, and the guys will see you back here next week. <laughs>